This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The following is a presentation of A's Cast, your free 24-7 nonstop destination for A's baseball. Go to athletics.com slash A's Cast to download the app. Restrictions apply. This is A's Cast Live, your comprehensive look at the Oakland Athletics. Watch the left field deep. Bam going back, looking up. He will watch it fly. And 29 other MLB clubs. 2-2 pitch on Trout, and he blasts one. Way back. Gone. Cody Bellinger hits one out. He does. So he's your home run derby champion. Join us as we take you inside the baseball universe. From spin rate to juiced balls to game-changing moments, we have you covered. Spend your afternoon with us next from the town, only on A's Cast Live. A's Cast Live. Here's Chris Townsend. It is A's Cast Live, and boy, do we have a great lineup for you today as we'll be on from 1 to 4 here on A's Cast. Sarah Langs, one of the top researchers in Major League Baseball, for MLB.com will join us. We'll be taking a look at the Toronto Blue Jays as we are going through every single division. And right now we're in the AL East. We'll look at the baby Jays and a guy has been a manager, a broadcaster and a longtime player. Buck Martinez is going to join us also doing national games as a broadcaster. And he'll also talk about the seventies A's as he played against those teams. It'll be a lot of fun. We'll have Buck Martinez on at 2 o'clock. It's a Wednesday. That means it's a Ray Fossey day. And game five of the World Series in 1974 would be today and the way we've been airing it. And Ray Fossey would hit the big home run off Don Sutton. We'll talk to Fossey about the hanging curveball that he launched out at the uh, Oakland Alameda County Coliseum. Fossey will be here at 2.30, also from MLB.com. Will Leach will be here at 3.30. How a prank. And Carl Yastrzemski calling it a career led to Pete Rose becoming a player manager for the Cincinnati Reds. Sounds crazy. like. What? A a radio prank led to Pete Rose becoming the player manager for the Cincinnati Reds. It's a crazy story, but Will Leach will have that for you coming up here at 3.30. Commander Cody, how are you in your apartment? Uh, I'm doing great. Uh, Can't really complain. I'm looking forward to the story from Will. That's like us doing a prank about something, essentially and then someone reaping the benefits of the prank. And it's a fascinating story, and I can't wait for everyone to hear that coming up at 3.30. But I'm doing well. Uh, I've been getting out a little more and taking the dog out, so can't really complain. How, how have you been since yesterday? I'm, I'm – uh, oh yeah, because, of course, we're working every day. Nothing changes for us um, as we did the pregame show for Game 4 of the 1974 World Series with the voice of Summer – the great Ken Korak. I'm actually 
interested to see how long my hair will get. I'm letting it go. My kids want to cut it. I'm not cutting it. I want, I've never had long hair before. My hair is growing really fast. And I want to see how long it can get during this shutdown. So we're not even in May yet. That's the thing. We're not even in May. So I'm going to have a whole month of May to let this thing go and to just see how awful and long it will get. I, I I'm just, in a place. Did you ever watch the original Bad News Bears? Yes. I'm going to look like Kelly Lee. <laughs> Kelly Lee had straight long. I have my hair straight. So I'm going to have that straight. I'm, I'm going to look. I, I, I want to get like the Motley Crue 80s hair rock hair. Is what I what is what I want to accomplish. I think you can pull it off. I'm a little disappointed because I took criticism every single day when my hair started getting long. What two months ago, and I went and got a cut. Nope, you know I get no. Hey, haircut looks nice. It's just finally, it's all I got. I got like a fight, like the rock coming back somewhere. Finally, but finally, your, your hair, the rock. Your hair. Uh, I want to see it get long because since it's, it's like if you do that, you have to grow the beard too. No, I'm not. I'm done with the beard. I, 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 I don't feel like a man when I look in the mirror and, and like I just I don't grow hair on certain parts of my face. Uh, we looked up today in baseball history. And there's some interesting things about this date in baseball history. And we got to get into the Bob Nightingale article about new divisions and what it could look like. But on this date in baseball history, Cody brings us. Andy Pettit makes his debut. He goes two-thirds of an inning, gives up two earned runs. I'm assuming, Cody, this was not a start. Yeah, it looks like it was a relief appearance against the Royals when he's with the, the Bronx Bombers back in 95, the year they lost in the World Series. No, the year they didn't make it to the World Series when the Braves won. But Pettit makes his debut in 95. I, I would say he had a nice little career, almost Hall of Fame worthy, for what he did with the uh, Yankees and, and Astros. And then he that would again. be the uh, Braves against the Indians in 1995. That's correct. The Indians losing two out of three World Series. And then in 2013, A's fans, do you remember that long, long night? And Brandon Moss would hit a 19th inning walk-off home run against the Angels to win 10-8. to eight. Do you want to hear the call? I have the TV called Kuiper and the great Raymond Fossey. Yes, I'd love to hear it. He has struck out four times. Oh, deep to right. This may do it. It is gone. Bottom of the 19th inning, and we are finally going home. Thank you very much. Thank Brandon you very Moss. much. <laughs> White guy gets to send him. What a night. What a night and what a what a two-day experience. Wow. And Jerry Blevins gets the win very deservedly. Brandon Moss, a home a two-home run game. One yesterday, one today. That's pretty good. <laughs> for Brandon Moss, he goes opposite field for the first home run. And then a game winner. How good is it to hear that? Oh, I miss Kipe. I miss Foss. I miss NBC Sports California. I watched every I, I watched every inning. 
And I want to say I stopped keeping score probably like the 11th or 12th, because at some point my book runs out for innings, and I wasn't going to start a new page. Brandon, he went three for eight. How about Cespedes? Cespedes went one for eight. Jed Lowry went two for nine. Seth Smith went two for eight. What a wild game. Started by Dan the K-Man Straley. Pat Nisha came in after him. Chris Resop. How about these names? Sean Doolittle, Grant Balfour, and finally, Ryan Cook. I mean, that's just crazy. Oh, no, no, wait a minute. It goes on. Brett Anderson and then Jerry Blevins. Blevins <laughs> would go an inning and two-thirds, and he'd get the win. Blevins at this point in the season is 2-0 and with a 1.65 ERA. Move over, Raleigh. Move over, Raleigh. Here comes Jerry Blevins. 2013. Man, that just seems like a lifetime ago. Six hours and 32 minutes was the time of game. That'd be two full baseball games in today's game. Coco led off, followed by Seth Smith, Jed Lowry, Yo, Brandon Moss, Josh Donaldson, John Jaso is your catcher, Josh Reddick, and Eric Sogard. Adam Rosales pinch hit and then proceeded to get six at-bats. <laughs> Nate Fryman appeared in this game, Chris Young. Uh, who else? Derek Norris. Oh, 2013. That was a fun year. Now, who the, who the Halos got? Orgis, Trout, Pujols, Hamilton, Trumbo, Kendrick, Harris, Ionetta, Jimenez. So that happened on this day in 2013. And then also a notable 2015 and something that, you know, you're probably going to see coming up here. 2015, because of the um, the riots that were going on in Baltimore, which really, from what I've learned, has really changed Baltimore, the city. That's when the riots were going on. And the White Sox and the Orioles played a game at Camden Yards with no fans. And I think a lot of us watched it on TV. I can't remember. It was at ESPN or MLB Network. Somebody aired it. And it was like, wow. And it was two years ago. I was in Baltimore. Uh, The Raiders were taking on the Ravens. And I've told this story before. I mean, at the nightlife restaurants, they're dead. There's, it's just, it's, no one's going to the inner Harbor and, you know, a place that was once packed. Like I've told the story. We went to this famous seafood place on a Saturday night. It was like nine of us. We walked right in where we, we sat down and I ended up going over and talking to the owner. And he just said, you know, the, the it, everything's changed. People are not coming to, to Baltimore anymore. But 2015 is when the Orioles and the White Sox played in front of no fans. But commander, I have April 29th, all-time top performers. Are you ready for the list? On this day, the greatest days ever. Um, a bit, you teased me with this earlier, but pre-show. 
Um, I'm excited. I want to hear some of the names that are on this list. The great Pete Rose in 1978 with the Cincinnati Reds went five for six, three home runs, four RBIs, and four runs scored. Is that any good? I mean, he is the all-time hits king. That's pretty good. Andre Dawson, the Hall of Famer, went five for five, a home run, two RBIs, a run scored, and hit for the cycle. It's a pretty good day. Al Rose, that was in 1987 with the Cubs. Al Rosen in 1952 with the Cleveland Indians was four for six, three home runs, seven RBIs, and four runs scored. Seven RBIs. Pitchers, Roger Clemens in 1986, nine innings, gave up one earned run, three hits, no walks, and struck out 20 batters. 20 batters. That was against the Seattle Mariners. At home at Fenway Park. Can you imagine how good you got to be on a night, Cody, to strike out 20 guys and not walk anybody? Uh, that's uh, pretty impressive. And we went through the list of guys that have had the 20K games. You know, Clemens, obviously, and Kerry Wood. But Clemens did it twice, which – I love the tweet. When, so I think when Scherzer did it, he tweeted out something like, hey, good job, man, but uh, try doing it twice or something like that. And he was electric. And, it's again, we talked about it. We, we love doing the is he or isn't he a Hall of Famer. Roger Clemens is a Hall of Famer no matter. Uh, but steroids are not before he was a Hall of Famer, probably before that happened. That's how good he was. I mean, it's, it, it, it is, it's an absolute joke that the guy with the most Cy Young Awards and the guy with the most MVPs are not in the baseball hall of fame. I mean, it's just it's it's a joke. Uh, it, the base the baseball hall of fame is a museum. It's about the history of the game. And if you're telling me that you're not going to vote these guys in, you you have you have guys in the baseball hall of fame who have done PEDs. You have guys. That took greenies. A lot of the players took greenies, which is now a substance that if you test for, you get popped. Greenies were the norm back in the day. That's how those guys got up. They're traveling so much. They're tired. They pop greenies. And you you voted them into the Hall of Fame. I mean, it's just, I mean, it. You, you're, you, you, you're trying to decide who to punish and who not to punish, who you like and who you don't like. And that's why I've always had an issue with just writers. And the reason why the writers vote is because back in the day, television wasn't prevalent. Radio wasn't that prevalent. The the writers were the main guys. Well, that's not the case anymore. And no offense to the writers, but your business is going under. People aren't buying newspapers. People are getting their news other places. I mean, for God's sakes, the San Jose Mercury News doesn't even put the box scores in anymore. They go to print so early, you can't get the box score of the A's, the Giants, the Warriors, the Sharks. I I stopped subscribing. I subscribed to the San Jose Mercury News since 1991 when I got here. 
I finally said, you're not going to put the actual game stories and the box scores in because they go to print like at like 7 or 8 o'clock at night. I'm out. And these are the people who are voting. We got people who vote for the Hall of Fame that I never see them at the Coliseum. They're columnists. They're not baseball writers. They're not baseball people. They go to some giant games. You'll see them when when the Giants come to Oakland, but you won't see them any other time. So if they don't even go to games, how do they have a vote? We worked with a guy. Oh, I don't, Cody, I don't even know if you're there, and I'm not going to bring his name up. But we worked with a guy who didn't even live in town and hadn't covered baseball in years and has a vote. Doesn't go to Major League Baseball games. Doesn't live in town. Doesn't live in a town that even has a Major League Baseball team, and he has a vote. Now, they've tried to pare it down, and I wonder if the new generation is going to and, and, and I'm not somebody that's going to say, oh, I don't care that guys did steroids. I, I don't like it. But I watched these guys' entire career, and you can't tell me they're not Hall of Famers. And you can't be putting in Piazza, and you can't be putting in Bagwell and these guys and not put in and punish, punish Bonds and Clements. You know, you're going to tell me Rafael Palmero's not a Hall of Famer? Sammy Sosa? Mark McGuire? Mark McGuire? Come on. It's a museum. I mean, it's not your job to be the moral police. And you know where the rubber's going to meet the road, as they said, Cody? You ready for this? I think I know where you're going with this, but sure. I but. I can't wait when Big Poppy gets on the list. I knew you were going to go with Poppy. We all love Big Poppy. Boston strong. Oh, big poppy. This he's is our so bleeping great. city. Uh, that speech was really good. But, yeah, he's the, the guy that I'm really curious about. Really, really oh, curious. If you go in and vote big poppy and make him like a first ballot Hall of Famer, you're all a bunch of frauds. You're all a bunch of frauds. Oh, what? Now is A-Rod going to get in? Because A-Rod apologized. Well, first of all, A-Rod lied and lied and lied and lied and lied, and they had so much information on him. It was a loosey-goosey era, okay? Remember that. (laughs) Remember when A-Rod went on with Mike Francesa and was like, I did not do, and then, come on. Yeah, it was a loosey-goosey era. (laughs) It was a loosey-goosey era. But but I'm not not defending him, and, and whenever, you know, in the days when we used to take phone calls, people called and say, Bonds never tested positive. Bonds, in front of a federal grand jury, put his hand on the Bible, Barry Lamar Bonds, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? And got up in front of a federal grand jury and admitted that he took the clear and the cream. It's in the game of shadows. The San Francisco Chronicle leaked it. He admitted to it. He just said he didn't know what he was taking. He thought it was flaxseed oil. <laughs> Speaking of bonds, uh, they they they, they, they had a thing today on MLB. On uh, I think MLB Network tweeted out it was walk off Wednesday is what they were doing. They're showing a bunch of classic games, and the first game they had on the docket, the 1992 NLCS Braves Pirates. I'm like, yeah, you know what? I'm glad I'm I'm gonna miss that one on purpose. Thanks, Barry. 
Oh, is that the Sid Bream game? It, it, yes, it is. That's the Sid Bream game. Oh, I, I think I missed that one. I saw the tweet at like 10 o'clock our time, so I was like, oh, the game's just over. Darn, I missed it. The eight hopper to home that he threw from oh. uh, short left field. Sid Bream on one leg. One leg, rounding third base. And then he goes on to get the contract with the Giants. And, you know, there's one guy you forgot on uh, April 29th performers. I went back and looked because someone tweeted it out. Tweeted it out. I went back and looked at the box score from this date. On this date in 1998, this Oakland Athletic went five for five with four runs scored, two RBIs, and two doubles in that game. Do you know who it was? You got to give me a year. 1998. 1998. Playing right field. He was batting third in the lineup. One ben spot. Grieve. Ben Grieve. Ricky Henderson led off that game. He went two for five. Matt Stairs was batting cleanup behind Grieve. And then Giambi was in the lineup. A.J. Hinch in the lineup. Scott Spezio as well. Kenny Rogers was the, the, gambler. For the, the gambler was the starter for the A's that day. By the way, R.I.P. to Kenny Rogers, the singer, who recently passed away. One of the great country artists and really crossover stars. Kenny Rogers was a star. He made movies, for God's sakes. The great Kenny Rogers, the original gambler. I'll never forget. And that's where you, know, you get brought up on the spot. I can't. There was that famous Italian restaurant on the corner in North Beach, right across the street from the park. And I can look it up. They had his Rookie of the Year press conference at this restaurant in San Francisco. I was there and covered it in 1998 when Ben Grieve was the Rookie of the Year. And at that moment, you thought this guy is going to be a star. You thought Ben Grieve was going to be just MVP, multiple-time All-Star. I mean, you looked at him. He was big. He had power. I mean, he looked the part. He really looked the part and then just absolutely fell apart. But, yes, I'm so old that I was there to cover the Ben Grieve Rookie of the Year press conference. Now it's killing me. What was the name of that place? I'm just trying to think what's in that area right there by by the ballpark. It became like Joe DiMaggio Steakhouse after that famous. It's, hold on. Well, I'm going to tell you, Ben Grieve in his career, he had an 8.4 war, 118 career homers, a 269 batting average, 492 RBIs, and an OPS plus of 113. Remember, he won Rookie of the Year, and he was a, he was a one-time All-Star. The great Ben Grieve is 43 years old. He will turn 44 in a few days. I'm researching right now. Sorry. Oh, you said Joe DiMaggio Steakhouse, correct? I'm trying to look to see if I can find it. No, that's not what it was. Well, that's what they changed it to right after. But yeah. also in 2000, in 2000, Ben Grieve hit his first career grand slam in the 10th inning. So Ben Grieve pretty big on April 29th back in the day in 98 and 2000. And then obviously Brandon Moss with the walk-off home run in the 19th inning 13 years later against the Halos in – as you would like to say, suck it, rally monkey. Yes. And that is not the only famous press conference uh, that I've covered in North Beach. Uh, I'll get to the other one. Uh, it has to do with uh, PJ Carlissimo and oh boy. Choking. Oh, boy. Is that what, is that what, I, that's what the great spree? 
Latrell Sprewell, for all you young um, Warrior fans out there, uh, got kicked out of practice, left angry, came back, and choked the coach. And Carlissimo had his own restaurant in North Beach. And so he gets canned. And I'll never forget, I was late. Because there's no, there's no parking in North Beach. And this was such a big event. I mean, even the President of the United States got involved in Sprewell, NBA, Warriors. I mean, the government was looking into this. This was a big deal, if you remember back. I had to crawl on my hands and knees to get my microphone up as PJ was about to talk. And PJ just looked down at me. I was, I was just such a peon at the time. Uh, and he just he looked at me like, really? <laughs> and then I had to crawl back to where the rest of the media was. Oh, my God. What a, that was a, You want to talk about a wild time and a divisive time in Bay Area sports history. Spreewell, NBA, the players versus the establishment. There's really, there's really like three things. There's Montana versus Joe Young. I mean, Steve Young. So uh, Montana versus Young, Spreewell choking Carlissimo, and Barry Bonds steroids. Three things that have just been huge stories that became national stories in the Bay Area and sports history. 68-game suspension the, for, for Spree for doing that. I remember – when we worked with Matt Steinmetz, Steiny was one of the the first uh, first on hand account uh, reporters writers at the time, and he always tells the story of what happened because he was there, or what he found out. And it was great to hear the story come from Steiny, who was covering the team back in '97 when he was just a lowly beat writer. I think he was working for like the Contra Costa Times or something like that back then. And I remember him telling the story, and then you see you hear about this, and people are like, "What? There's a player that choked out a coach? Yes, that happened 23 years ago now." And yeah, he served a well, 68-game suspension. If you remember my, my my Warrior days, as I've covered the Warriors on multiple occasions, I can't remember who the TV guy is, but he called into my talk show. And he covered the hearings. And it was ugly. I mean, this was really, you want to, it got racial. It, it went a lot of different ways. And in the end, Spree was reinstated and Carlissimo was gone. And it was a... Uh, it was an ugly time for, for a franchise that was, you know, a joke. They were terrible. Um, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was wacky times. Fun going over some history. It okay. is fun. And, by the way, it would have been like that if they actually would have had legit coverage in the 70s of the A's. What do you think it would have been like the way Charlie Finley treated his players? if it was really covered like today. What would it have been like when you've got Billy North and Reggie Jackson fighting each other, Ray Fossey gets hurt, has to have surgery, Blue Moon Odom and Raleigh Fingers are fighting before the World Series and Raleigh Fingers has to get stitches. What do you think this would have been like in today's baseball if they were like that today? It would be absolute mayhem. I can only imagine what Twitter would be like back then. <laughs> It'd be me. I mean, f- players, are, and these are just the fights that we know of. Can you imagine if, if you had a if you had an owner who 
your team's winning the World Series and he tries to give you a pay cut? What that would be like on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. And I mean, I mean, the, the owner would be called out. Can you imagine the owner is the GM and he doesn't even live in the same city? That's what, the, the, these, somebody really needs to do a deep dive, like a documentary, like The Last Dance right now with, with Michael Jordan and the Bulls. I think they're, by the way, they're very similar. And it's hard to compare eras, let alone two teams, different sports, different eras. But I think you can compare the A's to the Bulls. They had one common enemy. That was the front office. Charlie Finley was the front office. We've had all these players on from Reggie to Bando to Raleigh Fingers told us that he dealt with, with, with Finley one time, only one time. Then he got an agent and never talked to him again. Here's your star player, future Hall of Famer, would never speak to the owner again. Dick Green, Joe Rudy, Gene Tennis, Ray Fossey. I mean, am I missing anybody that we've had on? Uh, let me think. Billy North. Billy North. We had Monty on, but he was a broadcaster. But he also talked about Charlie Finley, which is pretty they good. They all said it. They all said it was the common enemy was Charlie Finley. Well, who was the common enemy for the Chicago Bulls? Jerry Krause. Jerry Krause. Jerry Krause was the bad guy. They all hated him. And they pick on him, too. Really bad. Oh, yeah. (laughs) They they, they despise him. They absolutely despise him. And watching, you know, this this documentary that's going on. Because, Cody, you you, you were were a baby, right, during this time? Jordan's last year, I would have turned 10. So... Or no, it would have been nine, and it would turn ten after he already retired. Yeah, you got to realize the Chicago Bulls were—they were rock stars. I mean, it was—it was the biggest, no doubt, the biggest team, probably of my lifetime, because they came—they came about as ESPN was now at its height. The internet was what was we now had internet. I know it might be crazy for a lot of you to think, but yeah, the last, not the first three teams. It was the last three that they won. Now we got the internet. Now we got ESPN.com. Now we got things that we never had before. And they hit right at the right time. Cause Celtics, there'll be nothing that replaces Celtics Lakers. That was incredible. That rivalry. Magic, Bird, those teams. But Jordan and the Bulls became so big with television and television money and cables now going big. That's what the A's would have been like in the 70s if they would have had all that. Can you imagine if there was cable television back in the day and these guys are highlights about these guys every single day and they all got mustaches and they're crazy and they fight each other? Someone needs to do a deep dive, a documentary on, you know, because we have books, but we need to, we, and we need to do it soon because a lot of these guys, they're all in their 70s. I, I think it would be fascinating to go back and really look at what it was like to be the swinging A's. And they got the cool nickname. 
and they're battling legendary teams. You're battling the big red machine. You're battling Tom Seaver and the Mets. You're taking on the great Dodgers. And then it implodes, just like the Chicago Bulls. Hey, how many NBA titles have the, uh, since Jerry Krause wanted to rebuild, how many NBA titles have the Bulls won since uh, Jordan left? There's been so many years in between, but uh, I want to put the number around uh, zero. Zero. How many times have they been to the finals? Uh, W zero. Yeah. But we we, we want to tell Phil Jackson. By the way, Phil Jackson would leave there. Would he ever win another NBA title as a head coach? I think he won, was it five more? I think he won five more. That sounds about right. Three in a row, then he won two with Kobe and Gasol. Uh, yeah. I, I, but they had to get run run him out of town. <laughs> yeah. You know you know you know how I found out about the Bulls when I was a kid? Like I knew who Michael Jordan was, obviously. I knew who, I found out who Dennis Robin was because WCW, when that was still around, uh, World Championship Wrestling, Ted Turner, they had Hulk Hogan, oh then Hollywood Hulk Hogan, and Dennis Rodman face Diamond Dallas Page and Carl Malone at Bash in the Beach, nineteen ninety eight. That was them cross promoting. It was Rodman and Carl Malone and a pay per view at WCW with Hulk Hogan and Diamond Dallas Page at the time. So that's kind of how they got mainstream for me as a kid because I don't, you know, bas- in Pittsburgh there was no basketball. But you knew who Michael Jordan was. And then if I don't know if you watched the most recent episode of The Last Dance, Dennis Rodman went to Vegas. This was going to be gone for 48 hours and no one could find him. Which ace player from the 70s is Dennis Rodman just leaving middle of the season and going to Vegas? We will ask the great Raymond Fossey coming up here <laughs> at 2.30. But before we do that, earlier today, we caught up with our gal. We love her to death. She's one of the best researchers. She's one of the best followers on Twitter, and she works for MLB.com. Sarah Lang stopped by. It's been a while since we've been able to talk to Sarah. Here's my conversation with her. Well, it is always a treat. As we tell you all the time, she's one of the best follows on Twitter, and her work is second to none as a researcher in Major League Baseball. Sarah Langs is back with us. How are you? We've missed you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm doing well. You know, I think we're all just getting by and, you know, feeling healthy, all of that. And it's really great to talk to you again. I miss talking to you. Yeah, it's good to talk a little baseball. And as you know, we've been celebrating the A's of the 70s where they won three straight World Series. They were in the playoffs from 71 to 75 and really established themselves as a dynasty. And I know you've looked into now the 70s A's. What did you find and what was interesting for you? Yeah, so, I mean, these teams are so much fun. I love looking back at all the personalities that were on these teams and, you know, seeing how they played the game. I've watched back a couple of games from those World Series, and it's just a joy to watch. I mean, I think, you know, first off, the first thing to really point out is, you know, people define dynasties in different ways. Obviously, the Giants in the 2010s were a dynasty, but they didn't win consecutive years, you know. So if you're going with the consecutive years designation, the only team to win three or more straight World Series other than some iteration of the Yankees was these 72 to 74 A's. And I mean, I think that alone tells you so much of what you need to know about just how dominant and just how incredible this run was. You know, I mean, we're talking 36, 39 Yankees, 49 to 53, then these A's and then the 1998 to 2000 Yankees. So putting the A's in that 
in that conversation is always great. And uh, I was looking at the 1972 team, and the thing that stuck out to me was the pitching. You know, and obviously they had the second best ERA in the majors that year behind the Orioles, but they had four pitchers to make at least 20 starts and have an ERA of 2.80 or lower. That's tied for the most such pitchers on a team in a season since Earn Runs became official in 1913. Now, it happened a handful of times, more than 10 times, but it hasn't happened since. And I think that's really cool and tells you so much about the way pitching has gone and how it's really gotten to be something that's more top heavy as opposed to having four really good guys. And even at that time, it was the only time that it happened since the mound was lowered, which was, you know, okay, only three years prior. But even before that, it happened in 1966, before that in 1919. So talk about some really, really good pitching right there. And another, right? I mean, I thought that was incredible. And I also think, you know, we talk about stats and we talk about, I think we've talked about war and, you know, the need to look at a lot of different stats to really get a good sense of what's going on with any year, right? So that sounds absolutely outstanding to me. And then I looked at where it ranked even among World Series winning teams uh, in terms of pitching war on on fan graphs, and they didn't rank you know, particularly highly. And I think that's in part because a lot of it has to do with strikeouts. It wasn't a strikeout heavy team, but I just think it's interesting because if you just look at the war, you would be like, oh, I don't know if this was that special. But then you hear that stat and you're like, all right, they had four really, really good pitchers right there. You know, Cody and I are always looking at guys and and and, and wondering, eh, should this guy be in the Hall of Fame? Shouldn't this guy, you know, and, and war is, is – we look at guys' wars, and some wars really surprise you. Does, does, does war really do a good job for pitchers? I, I believe it does a good job for position players. But is it really a good way to evaluate pitchers? I do think it is. But, again, I, my, you know, my line here is always pretty much the same, which is just that it just shouldn't be the end-all, be-all. I do think that your point is definitely true that, you know, for a position player, first of all, it's going to consider the defense and their hitting, which is an important thing. And for pitching, there's really only one thing to consider, which is the pitching. And I do think that often it can be a little skewed towards guys that are really strikeout heavy. And we know, I mean, you know, there's nothing wrong with being a sinker baller. Maybe in today's game, there's, you know, a perception that it's not necessarily as dominant, but you can do that. And that's not necessarily going to show up in one of those really high war numbers, especially for a pitcher. But I still think it's at least a good starting point or at least a good thing to have in the mix, you know, however you want to approach that. You know, looking at guys' numbers, and we've really gotten into this because watching Raleigh Fingers, he truly is amazing. And I'll, and I'll even throw in another A, and, and really where his star was, was with the Yankees, was Goose Gossage. And the volume that these guys pitch makes them so valuable. And watching Raleigh Fingers, I mean, it's amazing. To right-handers, he, he's, he's a three-quarters, what we'd call a slinger, even drops down sidearm. To left-handers, he's coming over the top, more traditional. He's got all these different release points. He's absolutely nasty. And, and, and the point was, if we took the names away from the numbers, if we took Mariano Rivera's numbers, Trevor Hoffman, whoever you think the great closers of all time, if you take their names off and you just look at the numbers, who do we really consider the greatest? And I think there's an argument for Raleigh Fingers, because of the volume, the amount of innings, the amount of outings, what did you find when you started evaluating these great closers against each other? 
Yeah, I mean, I definitely think there's an argument. I think ultimately I do have to give it to Mariano Rivera. But I mean, one of the things that made Raleigh Finger so incredible is simply that he was basically pioneering the position as he was doing it. I mean, the save became an official stat in 1969. He was he, he pitched in one game in 1968, but he basically began pitching in 1969 and really came into his own, you know, with this role of being a closer, getting saves and all of that a few years later. And there just weren't guys necessarily doing that in the same way at the time. So I do think that, you know, that's where a lot of the volume comes from is that the way that relievers were used was just quite different. So the fact that he had a 290 career ERA in this different kind of use, you're not just in there necessarily to nail down a win. You may be in some more uh, what we might consider high leverage situations even later in the game. Uh, that definitely puts you in a different spot. And so maintaining that and doing all of that, again, in the 70s and 80s, when this wasn't a thing, we didn't have Mariano Rivera and Trevor Hoffman, all these other names trotting out there in the eighth or ninth inning. I think that that's uh, really impressive. You know, and of course, uh, the A's have done so much for baseball history. You think of Charlie Finley really advocating for the D.H., Tony LaRusso, Dennis Eckersley. I mean, this was really the start of the one-inning closer. And to think about Eckersley, Fingers, two of the great relievers in the history of baseball. And I just wonder, if you had a guy like that today, and I know you could probably say hater, but if you had a guy like Raleigh Fingers today, who really you could say, you're going in in the seventh, and you're pitching the seventh, eighth, and ninth, and you're getting the save, or you're getting the win – how valuable would a guy be like today, the amount of volume that Raleigh Fingers pitched, the amount of innings and appearances, how valuable would he be in baseball? So valuable. I mean, I think we've seen it. I think Hater is a good example because I think that just shows you his value. And it also shows you, you know, last year when he struggled at times and obviously in the postseason, just how much that hurt the Brewers. But I mean, so much of what that like run that they had over the last two, three years was, was built on, on Josh Hader and his being able to do that. And that was what made what Craig Council could do so different from so many other teams because it's really, for whatever reason, it's not something that's developed. It's not the way that guys end up when they're relievers, whether it's because they started as a starter. Once they become a reliever, they're more accustomed to only one inning or two innings or wherever it's coming from. Your long man is usually not your best reliever. And for this guy to be able to come in, and do that, come in in the fifth inning if he needs to, and still be effective, I think that, you know, any team would be very well served, especially with, you know, where we're going these days with pitch counts and how deep into a game a starter goes. If every team had a guy like that, I think the game would be very different, but in a great way. I mean, I think that every team would benefit from that. I just wonder, you know, the bounce back effect from what we saw with the Washington Nationals last year, the volume that they got out of their starting pitchers, you know, this game constantly changes and we, we've been going towards the change of less innings by the starters and more innings by the relievers. But then the Washington Nationals showed us once again, and maybe they just have that special group, but they showed us once again, if you've got more legit starters and you can get more out of your starting pitching, it so helps the bullpen because the Nationals bullpen wasn't that great last year. Yeah, well, I mean, they had to turn to those starters as relievers. They all made relief appearances. I think I don't have it in front of me, but I have a stat that they were the first team ever. I think this is right to have three different pitchers who had 200 strikeouts for them in that season 
pitch in relief in a postseason with Corbin and Strasburg and Scherzer. And I mean, that just shows you, I think, again, the value of having someone who can come in and pitch a little longer and be really effective in relief. That's essentially what they were searching for, to your point, because their bullpen was not great in the regular season. And they literally got to October still trying to figure out who exactly they were going to rely on out of that bullpen. So it's interesting. I mean, I wonder, you know, what that rotation is going to look like this year. I mean, you know, Max Scherzer's 35, you know, he's getting up there. Anibal Sanchez had a really strong year for them last year, but he's also, you know, older past middle of, you know, being 30 and all that. And we'll see whether they can replicate that, whether they're tired. We've seen a lot of pitchers, you know, especially on the heels of, a deep run like that into October, be, be tired and not quite performed to the same level uh, the following year. And we just had Chip Hale on, one of their coaches uh, and a longtime coach for the Oakland Athletics. And the biggest question was, how are you going to replace Baby Shark? What, what, what are you guys going to do now? <laughs> That's a really good question. What is the next dance craze? I don't even know. Maybe all these TikToks, right? I feel like that's been a big thing in quarantine. Are we going to see the Nationals on TikTok? Their social media is outstanding, so I would not put that past them. I got to tell you, being the father of twin 14-year-old girls, whoever created TikTok is the devil. (laughs) I'm sure you know a lot more about it than me because I don't even know how to go on it or log on. I just see people like tweet out videos and it has that logo, so I know it's a TikTok and there's some good dog videos, but that's basically all I know. So my dog, Spencer, a King Charles Cavalier, they have created a TikTok for him. He has oh, over gosh. a thousand followers now. They don't want me to promote it. They want they oh want it to be organic. And so Spencer, my dog, has his own TikTok. And uh, let me just say, in quarantine, it's TikTok every day, all day. <laughs> That's amazing. I I mean, my my best friend's dog has an Instagram. Both of her dogs. So I, I understand this from the social media for the animals perspective. This Friday, when you go this date in baseball history. Ricky Henderson breaks the all-time stolen base record, and Nolan Ryan would throw his last no-hitter, no-hitter number seven. You talk about a special day in baseball history coming up this Friday, a big deal. Yeah, so I love this kind of stuff. I love going through, you know, this date in baseball history and seeing different things that happen, whether it's something more minor or something really big like this. And the really cool thing to me is just like seeing two you know, baseball history moments that we're going to talk about for so long happening on the exact same date. And this one, you know what it makes me think of that's a lot more recent is that Albert Pujols has had two moments like this in his career where when he hit his 600th home run, Edinson Volquez threw a no-hitter that day. Now that's not Nolan Ryan throwing a no-hitter, and that's also not Ricky Henderson stealing 939. But those are two really big moments happening on the same day and then and then when Albert Pujols got his 3,000th hit the Dodgers threw that combined no hitter uh that they had down in Mexico that was started by uh, Walker Bueller back in uh, 2018 and I just love when these kinds of things happen on the same date like that and that is not Ricky and Nolan Ryan I am not at all comparing these things although Albert Pujols will be joining them in Cooperstown at some point of course but uh I just I love the idea of like getting one up like which one one up to the other which is the bigger moment like you know Oh, that's great. Hey, have you been watching any of this uh, Michael Jordan documentary, Last Dance? Yes, yes. 
You know, it's it's it, 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 I can tie it back to the A's. You just think about how dysfunctional management with the players were with Charlie Finley and the A's, and then you get to Jerry Krause with the Chicago Bulls. They're very similar when it comes to there was a common enemy. And for the A's, it was Charlie Finley, the owner slash GM. For the Bulls, it was Jerry Krause. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I hadn't uh, I hadn't thought about it in that terms, but you know that just makes me want to see the ten part documentary about the A's now, and that's what watching all of this has just made me want to see so many baseball ten part documentaries. You know, like looking forward to it, gets all these deep dives and everything else. I mean, really would love to see this treatment of any baseball topic, honestly. Yeah, it would if they really wanted to do something. Uh, if they would do it quickly while a lot of them are still alive. Sal Bando, the captain, was on this show a couple weeks ago, and he's telling the story about how they're at Dodger Stadium, they're about to have a workout, and the, the head clubhouse guy for the visiting clubhouse comes up to him and says, hey, what's the deal? I've been hearing a lot of stories about you guys. You guys fight each other. And Sal's like, oh, that's so overblown. And just after Sal tells him that, Blue Moon Odom and Raleigh Fingers get into a fight this is right before the World Series. Raleigh oh Fingers has to get stitches. And the clubhouse guy's looking at Bando going, I, I, I mean, can you imagine <laughs> what that would be like in today's baseball where teams are fighting each other before the World Series? Absolutely. Like, beyond belief. I, and I think of that, I mean, going back to the MJ documentary, I think of how all of that would be if it were in today's era, just of social media and everything. I mean, you're talking about a TikTok for your dog. I mean, think about how everything is just online all the time. Can you imagine those teams, MJ teams, whatever you want to think of, I mean, anything before the last 10 years happening or maybe the last 15 years, whatever you want to say, happening in this era where everything is transmitted so quickly and on so many platforms. Yeah, Jordan hit Steve Kerr in a practice one time and had to call him and apologize. I mean, it's 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 weird to compare baseball and basketball, but I think you could compare the Bulls and the and you talk about how crazy Rodman was. I think you could compare the '70s A's who were crazy with the Chicago Bulls. But I want to end on this. So you have some, of course, your your Mets. You weren't alive, obviously, in 1973. <laughs> But the A's took on the Mets in 1973. What do you got for me? Mets A's 1973 World Series. Yeah, so I don't have a whole lot on the World Series itself. But, you know, something I I saw about the 1973 team that uh, surprised me was that. So I was looking at them and obviously the 72 team and the 74 team for the A's were a lot more pitching heavy. I thought, I mean, just based on numbers and everything else than uh, the team in 73. But the 1973 team had 39.2 offensive war, so as a whole team, uh, on baseball reference, which is 10th most among World Series winners all time. I mean, you're just talking more than 100 World Series winning teams. And this is a list that is, of course, led by the 1927 Yankees. But I was looking at the team, and I didn't think, oh, that's going to be a huge war number necessarily. But, I mean, they're up there, top 10. I thought that was a that was pretty cool, and that's probably a reason that uh, the Mets, it didn't, you got to believe it didn't make it all the way, but they got really close. You know, that Mets team, I mean, you, you look at that roster. We, so we played game one and it was in Oakland and, and, you know, Yogi Berra comes out and the rest of the lineup was, it wasn't very good. I mean, the only really notable guy was Willie Mays and he was 42 years old. Rusty Staub was hurt. Uh, couldn't play. And you're like, 
Well, there's a reason this team only won 82 games. But the, the key thing about this is this is when Reggie Jackson would start being Mr. October as he'd be the MVP of the 73 World Series. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But, yeah, I mean, just looking at this Mets roster, I, you know, everyone's hitting 250, you know? I mean, this doesn't look like a team that got you know, just right, right up to the World Series, almost won it. I mean, you know, the highest average I'm just, is, Rusty Staub, you said, I'm sorry, Felix Milan hit uh, 290, but I mean, Felix Milan, you know, we're, this is not, you know, a team that we would think of as a World Series team uh, today. Yeah, but when you got Seaver and Kuzman and those guys, uh, you're, yep. you're going to have a shot. Sarah, thank you so much. You know, one of the things we've been doing here is just trying to bring on familiar voices, and you've become a very familiar voice for our fan base, so it's great to hear from you. It's good to know you're well. We'll talk to you soon, and uh, take care of everybody there in New York. Awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, and I'm really proud to be one of those familiar voices, so thank you. Sarah Langs, she is, she's a lot of fun. And, you know, it's funny, it's, it, we, we've developed these relationships here on A's Cast with people that basically we found, and you can follow her at S Langs on sports, but we have found people from Buster Olney's podcast, Baseball Tonight, Buster Olney, who we can say friend of the program. Uh, whether you're talking about Paul Himbakides or Sarah Langs, they both came up at ESPN. Himbo stayed at ESPN. She's now at MLB.com. But from research capacity, when, when, when the season gets going, Sarah's tweeting every day, all day, with just facts and nuggets that we use on this show all the time. And she's a baseball junkie, and it's always great to have her on the program. When we when we were doing the 70s stuff, I thought of her and Hembo because they do this for a living, looking up stuff, and Sarah had some great stuff on those 70s teams. And I remember the first time I heard her on with Buster, you know, what was that, a year, a year plus ago, even longer than that. And I was like, she'd be great for our show. And, you know, we've had her ever since, and same with Hembo. And we have Hembo, Hembo on every week. He, he volunteers and wants to come on for half an hour every week. <laughs> and last, you know, it's past. What was it? Monday we did it with him. He was he was really good talking about the Hall of Fame and 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 the trivia. Like it, that stuff's fun with him because he the trivia is great. And then you know he's so he has great opinions and, and facts on the Hall of Fame stuff. So that's why I really enjoy listening to what he has to say. Yeah, he, he he's solid every single Monday. Let's move Buck Martinez to three o'clock. I, w- I was just going to tell you that. Uh, Jim Hunter, one of the uh, broadcasters for the Baltimore Orioles, who was at the fanless game, agreed to come on at 3 o'clock. Oh, okay. Then we'll do Buck now, then. Um, Yeah, that's okay. We got to – let's research this during the break, because we haven't even taken a break yet today. Uh, Let's research this during the break. Who aired that game? Because I remember watching it. So they – somebody aired it nationally. I don't know if it was MLB Network – I don't know if it was ESPN. Somebody aired it, and it was a trip as the cameras would follow the foul balls into the stands, and the balls would just bounce around. There were people, because you can see inside Camden Yards from the outside of it. There were people standing outside watching it. It was just eerie. But I think it'll be different. It'll be different from the standpoint of 
there's, you know, there was, there was racial unrest that caused what happened in Baltimore. This will be a virus, so I think this will just this, this will be different. There's not going you know, to there's not going to be riots going on. There was riots going on in Baltimore during this time. There's not going to be riots going on. I mean, this is going to be just playing baseball in front of no fans, and everybody's going to be watching it, and it's going to be uh, record television ratings. I mean, you had 15.6 million people watch a virtual draft. Think about that, a draft. On three different networks, a draft. And let's face it, unless you're a draft junkie, you don't even know 90% of these guys. I mean, how many of these guys did you actually know, Cody, even in the first round? I'm trying to think here. Uh, well, obviously, the quarterbacks I knew. Yeah, you knew quarterbacks. Uh, obviously, you knew the defensive tackles. Uh, the, who, Chase Young, I knew him because of Ohio State, but yeah, well, he's the number two pick, and he's uh, a monster. Some of the guys, I, I don't know, I didn't, they didn't really. I mean, I watched college football. I don't watch college football. Did as you much know every single Alabama receiver. No, uh, uh, Judy was a Judy. Say no to drugs. Say yes to rugs. And who was the other one? Uh, <laughs> was there? And then there was the kid. There was a T. Was it Higgins? Was a kid from Clemson. Was there three receivers from Alabama? There was Jerry Judy. There was three, there was three receivers drafted by at Alabama. It was Judy. I can't remember who the other one was now. Exactly. The, yeah, I can't remember. I just remember those two guys. I was watching. So I, I, I had my 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 best friend. Unfortunately, his mother just passed away. So I had his son with me, and we were watching the last day of the draft. And this, this is the first time I haven't done a draft show in over 20 years. I've always been a part of the draft. Um, and he's asking me questions. I'm like, look at this. This guy's drafted in the seventh or the sixth round, and the TV makes him look like he's, like, the greatest thing of all time. You know, he scored, like, five touchdowns, but they show you three of his touchdowns. And, he, yeah. oh, look at this guy. Look at his routes. You're like, he's a sixth rounder. He'll be a special teams guy if he's lucky. He's going to be a gunner. He's a sixth-round wide receiver, and the and the and ESPN or NFL Network makes him look like he's a going to be an All-Pro. They build up every one of these dudes, and the majority of them won't even be in the league two two or three year in two or three years. Uh, do you want breaking news, or should we save it? This you is have actually, the breaking news sound. I do. I have it right here. We come back right here on A's Cast Live. This is A's Cast Live, your comprehensive look at the Oakland Athletics. Watch the left field deep. Bam going back. Looking up. He will watch it fly. And 29 other MLB clubs. 2 2 pitch on Trout, and he blasts one. Way back. Go for Yelich. Cody Bellinger hits one out. He does. So he's your home run derby champion. Join us as we take you inside the baseball universe. From spin rate to juiced balls to game-changing moments, we have you covered. Spend your afternoon with us next from the town, only on A's Cast Live. A's Cast Live. Here's Chris Townsend. Oh, boy, this is juicy. I mean juicy juice. Give me my breaking news sounder. 
live from the ABC Sports Desk in New York, I'm Chris Townsend. Give us the breaking news, Commander. This is from the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum at Baseball Hall on Twitter. Our board of directors has voted unanimously to cancel the 2020 induction weekend due to health and safety concerns associated with the COVID-19 pandemic. The class of 2020 will be inducted in 2021 alongside any class of 2021 electees on July 25th, 2021. So no Hall of Fame weekend in 2020. Why does that make it juicy? Any cancellation right now is not juicy. What makes this story very interesting? Derek Jeter. Not only Derek Jeter and Larry Walker, but this was supposed to be Jeter's moment. Will Jeter have to share this moment with Kurt Schilling? And first-time guys on the ballot, David Ortiz and Alex Rodriguez. Oh, A-Rod, can A-Rod finally get out of Jeter's shadow? (laughs) Oh, my God, because you know these guys can't stand each other. It's so obvious. Jeter's moment once again being interrupted because of A-Rod. And Ortiz. <laughs> and and now A-Rod's bringing J-Lo. So J-Rod coming to town, to Cooperstown, taking some of the shine away from Derek Jeter. That is inter-turmoil. And how will they handle that? What if they're the owner of the Mets by then, too? So you got two competing uh, guys, that were te- you know, team- two guys who were teammates, and now two competing owners of teams in the same division. If you bought him and uh, J-Lo by the New York Mets. Oh, if you want to make it even juicier, put Bonds and Clemens in. Let's see who also. First-time guys on the ballot that they think will get some votes. Mark Teixeira. Mark Burley's a second-timer. So it's it's A-Rod, David Ortiz, and Mark Teixeira would be the kind of big names. Jimmy Rollins, Carl Crawford, Jake Peavy, no. Harry Zito will be on it for the second time. Nick Swisher, Swishalicious. First-timers, let's see, Joe Nathan, Prince Fielder, Marlon Bird, Justin Morneau, and our guy, Coco Chris, will make his first time onto the ballot. How about that? Buying or selling, Coco is a Hall of Famer. We like Coco a lot. I like Coco. Great guy. You know, we've got to know him really well from last year when he was doing broadcasting, broadcast with Ken Career 28.9 war. Sell. Sorry, Coco. This, I just don't think he did uh, – not even the war. I mean, he was, a, he was a really good player. I just don't think that – was he through a, a stretch of his career, a five- to seven-year stretch, the best player in his position? I, I, unfortunately, I would say probably not. But he was still a very solid leadoff hitter and a great player and a good leader. Led the league in stolen bases in 2011. Still selling? Yeah, still selling. Billy North led the uh, the uh, American League in stolen bases, I think, twice, and he's not a Hall of Famer. 
Coco will always go down as a great A. And he'll go down as a great A for not only his play, but also as a guy who wanted to be an A. When there are a lot of guys who are like, get me the hell out of here. He, he loved playing here. He was Billy Bean's kid's favorite player. He loved playing here. He loved being on the West Coast. He loved that he could get on a quick flight to L.A. Southwest. I mean, he's told us plenty of times. I love playing here. That's why I kept resigning. He's always going to be a beloved A. All right, we're taking a look at the Toronto Blues. But is in that kind of juicy? Well, you know, I, you know, what I feel bad for though. I feel bad for our guy Hawk Harrelson because he was supposed to go in too with with uh, Ted Simmons and Marvin Miller as well. But you know, they'll go in next year. But yeah, that's juicy with a Rod and potentially Ortiz and and uh, all of them going in together with and Larry and Larry and Schilling and Larry Walker and maybe Bonds and Clemens. Highly unlikely, but you never know. Stranger things have happened. I, I mean. Schilling is controversial, not because of his play. It's because of his politics. He's a hardcore conservative. And let's face it, writers tend to be more left than they are right for the most part. So is Schilling not in the Hall of Fame right now because of what he did in his career? Or is it because of his politics? So there's so much controversy through. I mean, you could have. J-Lo, A-Rod, Jeter, Schilling, poor Larry Walker. No one's even going to know he's there. Oh, it could be a juicy class. Oh, and if Bonds and Clemens got in, it could be <laughs> it could be like the dis, the most dysfunctional Hall of Fame class of all time. The attendance records will be shattered. And, and you got in your speech, you, you, everybody recognizes the other guys in your class. You imagine that? Jeter's got to praise Schilling. He's got to praise Aaron. Oh, God. David Ortiz. <laughs> It'll be great. All right. The Toronto Blue Jays. They stunk. They were 67 and 95. They used 21 different starting pitchers, but they've got a lot of great young players. And their names on the back of the jersey Guerrero, Bachette, Biggio, the baby Jays, they're coming. I don't know when, but there's going to be a point when the Yankees and the Red Sox and the Rays are going to have to deal with an up-and-coming young Blue Jay team. Our old friend Tanner Roark is there. Uh, they made some moves to, to boost the staff. Ryu from the Dodgers. So I, I, I think once this thing gets going... The Jays, I don't know how good they're going to be, but they're going to be no day at the beach. Let's just say that. Here is my conversation. He played in the big leagues. He managed in the big leagues. He's been a broadcaster for the Blue Jays. He's done national games on television. I mean, what a baseball life. Here is my conversation with Buck Martinez of the Toronto Blue Jays. Well, our next guest here on A's Cast Live is a baseball legend. He's done everything from a player to a manager to a broadcaster, and it's always great to have him on. Buck Martinez is with us. Buck, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? 
we're doing well here in Northern California. And one of the things that we've been doing here is we're breaking down every division and we're going through every single team. And right now we're in the AL East and we're going to talk about your Toronto Blue Jays who are such an interesting team once we get this thing started in 2020. As we like to call them the Baby Jays, you got a lot of young talent that's going to be fun to watch grow. Yeah, we sure do have a lot of young talent. And, uh, you know, spring training was moving along in the right direction for sure before it came to an abrupt end. But, uh, you know, we've, everybody knows about Vladdy Guerrero Jr. He put on a great show at the All-Star Game last year and had a pretty good rookie season. Uh, but then we got Bo Bichette at shortstop and Kevin Biggio at second and Lourdes Gurriel Jr. in left field and Rowdy Telez from Elk Grove. He's done a terrific job in a couple of different stints with the Blue Jays. So, yeah, the prospects are very good. And I think the young guys are going to be the foundation of this organization going forward. When's the last time you've seen a young group like this with the names on the back of the jerseys that we all think about their fathers, but this collection of young talent all at the same time? When's the last time you've seen this? Yeah, I don't think we've ever seen this before. And there is a possibility that the Blue Jays starting infield could all be second-generation Major League players. Oh, if you consider Travis Shaw at first base, of course, his father, Jeff Shaw, pitched a long time in the Major Leagues. And then Calvin Bijou at second, his father's a Hall of Famer. Uh, Roddy at third, his father's a Hall of Famer. And Bo Bichette, Dante Bichette, was a heck of a player for a long time in the big leagues. So it's pretty unique. And you can really see it in the way these guys carry themselves day to day. They've been around the game since they were children and uh, they understand uh, how you carry yourself. They understand the work you have to put into it. And uh, they're all very humble. They're all very uh, uh, motivated. And I think they're all very good players. You know, that always fascinates me because that's something in, in my days of covering the Golden State Warriors. When you look at Steph Curry and Clay Thompson, how these guys grew up with their dads being NBA stars, that it was just a natural thing for them. It's just, it, 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 and you as a former player, you know, what do you think the true difference is for a guy that just shows up and goes, oh my God, I'm in the big league versus a kid who grew up running around a clubhouse? Yeah, it's dramatically different. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, when you talk to these guys and you, you see them, well, Bo was taking ground balls with the Rockies, Troy Tulowitzki and DJ LeMahieu when he was 14, 15 years old. So he's been on the major league field for a long time. Same with Vladdy Guerrero. We can remember great stories about Vladdy being around the game, you know, since he was five and six years old and dressing up in an Expos uniform. And there's great shots of he and his father being introduced in Montreal to the Big O, and, uh, you know, they've all been around it. And, of course, uh, Craig Biggio was a terrific uh, player all over the diamond, no matter where you put him. He got 3,000 hits. He's in the Hall of Fame, and Kevin certainly has that type of pedigree. Uh, he's, he's probably the leader of this young core. Kevin Biggio, the second baseman, I mean, he's a, he's a very professional young man, played college baseball at Notre Dame, and uh, you can see that uh, his bloodlines are very strong. You know, one key issue that has to be corrected for the Blue Jays in 2020 and going forward is they used 21 starting pitchers last year. That is just the, the amount of pitchers. That's just somehow, some way. And I know you got our, our former guy, Tanner Roark. Just talk about the starting rotation and, and how it really needs to come together to help these young players. Yeah. And obviously, we all saw that firsthand. Uh, 
demonstrated in the World Series when Washington won the World Series on the strength of that great starting pitching. And you're right, 21 starters last year for the Blue Jays, that just wasn't going to work. So they went out and they brought in Hunjin Ryu, Tanner Roark, Chase Anderson, all three major league established starting pitchers. Plus, they went over to Japan and signed Shun Yamaguchi, and he's making a bid for a starting role, too, once this thing resumes. And we get Matt Shoemaker back. A lot of the A's fans will remember that Shoemaker got hurt in Oakland in a rundown between first and second towards ACL after a terrific start to his season, and he was lost for the rest of the year. So they have the chance to have five solid major league starters, including Trent Thornton, who pitched last year as a starter all season long, pitched fairly well. And Ryan Barucki, who had a good run in 17, or excuse me, in 18, and then missed most of 19, but he's coming back healthy. And they've got a, num- a young man in the minor leagues that uh, baseball fans have already heard about in Nate Pearson. And he's a, an impact starter of a much longer lines of a Chris Carpenter or a Roy Halladay. And uh, he's going to be an ace for the Blue Jays as soon as he makes his major league debut. You know, one of the fun things that we've been doing here on A's Cast Live and also on NBC Sports California is we've been playing the World Series game from 72, 73, 74. So right now we're in the World Series in 1974 against the Dodgers. You're a longtime American League guy. When you look back at the greatness of the A's of 72, well, really 71 through 75, but the World Series years of 72, 73, 74, when you look back, what do you think about those Oakland Athletics teams? They were unbelievable in their ability to put great teams together. You know, uh, Johnny McNamara was the manager in 70, and Dick Williams came over, and they, they lost the championship series in 71. But then they won three straight World Series. And all the while, I'm playing in Kansas City, and we're trying to catch these guys. And uh, it was just a terrific team. They had everything you wanted in a baseball team. Of course, they had Reggie Jackson and Sal Bando and Burt Campaneras. But then they had a young pitcher that caught the league uh, by surprise in, in Vita Blue. He won the Cy Young and the MVP in 71 and just carried that right on through those championship seasons. But uh, – we love playing against Oakland. We, we loved it. They were tremendous players. They were fiery. They had a lot of personality. They had Catfish and Vida, as we mentioned. And, and they had uh, so many great players, uh, Gene Tennis and Dave Duncan early on, and, of course, Ray Fossey. And, of course, who can forget the closer, Raleigh Fingers. But you talk about a, a collection of Hall of Fame caliber players. They had them in Oakland. And uh, we always enjoyed playing against those great teams. And and what we have learned, because I've been interviewing all of them, the guys that are still alive, and it's so much fun. And just what a wacky time it was. Here you got Charlie Fenley. He's running the team from Chicago. He can't see the games. He's listening to them by phone. They're fighting each other all the time. We had the we had Sal Bando on, and Sal was telling the story right before the 74 World Series. The clubhouse attendant at Dodger Stadium was like, hey, I heard you guys are a wild bunch and that uh, you guys are fighting all the time. And Sal goes, ah, that's overrated. And as he's saying that, right after that, there's the fight between Blue Moon and Raleigh Fingers. Raleigh has to get stitches. I mean, it's just a crazy time that you'll never see anything like this again. Never again. Yeah, the the word around the league was they they fought themselves before the game and they fought the opponents during the game. (laughs) They were tremendous. And you know what? They had so much fire. And they were all so talented. And they were all so different. You know, everybody had their own personality. Of course, uh, 
Reggie was uh, bigger than big at that time, and uh, Sal was a terrific player. We hated Sal Bando. We absolutely hated Sal Bando. We had a fight with him, and I'll never forget this. One day in uh, Oakland, uh, Sal was at the plate. Edgar Patrick was catching, and uh, they got in an argument, and Sal just picked up his mask and smoked him as he was still in his catcher's crouch. (laughs) 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 We had fights with Billy North. Billy North just came up with the A's and, and Doug Bird's on the mound. And we didn't know Billy North from Adam. But uh, Billy North gets up there and then Doug Bird throws at him and Billy North charges the mound. And I was thinking, what the hell's going on here? But they had a fight in the minor leagues and that carried into the big leagues. And that's the way it was when the Royals played against the uh, the A's. And, of course, the, the big punch-up that we had, the one that uh, – a lot of people remember was Don Baylor got hit by Dennis Leonard and Baylor went to the mound. I grabbed Don Baylor on one side, the umpire Bill Haller grabbed him on the other side and all three of us went to the mound. But uh, yeah, we had some terrific battles some great baseball games too, but um, the swinging A's, they were, uh, they were as tough as it gets at that time. And obviously they dominated, they dominated baseball for those three straight seasons. You know, watching these games, there's a lot of things that you notice that are just different in baseball. And a lot of – well, one thing is games are under uh, under three hours, which would have been nice uh, compared to our postseason games now that are, are, are four hours or more. But to watch the ball be put into play more, to watch guys choke up, make contact, uh, to watch the hard-nosed play, Buck, to watch, you know, second baseman and shortstops constantly being taken out. I mean, the game was just so much more physical than what we have now. No question about it. It was physical. It was uh, rough. You you did whatever you can. I remember one day, Campy slid into me at home plate and spiked me in the chest protector. <laughs> and his, his spikes got stuck in my chest protector, and he couldn't move. But I couldn't do anything because Billy North is on the bases, running around the bases, and Campy, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but he was trying to kick the ball out of my glove and spike me literally in the chest. But uh, we knew it was going to be tough. We knew it was going to be a battle, and uh, we always had fun playing them. You know, you wanted to play the best. And, you know, we didn't beat them until 76, and, and we beat them at home in Oakland. And uh, I, I think Cookie Rojas dropped down a two-strike, two-out bunt to drive in the winning run, but it was the first time we ever beat Oakland in that great run they had. And uh, we were pretty proud to uh, to have that kind of uh, opponent in our division, and we finally were able to beat them in 76. You know, when you look at your career, it's pretty amazing. As a player, a broadcaster, you've been a manager. Not many people have ever done all three. When you look back at your career, just, just take us through. Just uh, It's a baseball life that's pretty sweet. You know what? I'm very fortunate. I came out of Elk Grove. I went to Sacramento City College. Uh, I never really had any thoughts of being a major league player and. uh Joe Gordon was the manager of the expansion Kansas City Royals in 69, and he was from Sacramento. He had seen me play a little bit, and um, they took me in the Rule 5 draft. And uh, at that time, you know, everybody was uh, uh, dealing with the Vietnam War. I didn't go to spring training until after my first major league season. And actually, I made my debut against the A's. I uh, got my first hit against Blue Moon Autumn in Kansas City in June of 69, and you know, I've just been very fortunate uh, to, to play a long time, and I've actually been a broadcaster twice as long as I've played. 
And then I managed the Blue Jays. I got to manage the first World Baseball Classic team for Team USA. And I've been very fortunate. And, uh, you know, I started out as an analyst on TV, and now I'm doing play-by-play as well. So I guess uh, I've done just about everything in the game. And certainly uh, I, I missed one thing for sure, and that's going to the World Series like those great Oakland A's teams. Well, it's always great to bring it back home, back to Northern California. Be well, be safe, and uh, when we get this thing going again, hopefully we'll see you at the Coliseum. No, I would look forward to that. Hopefully we'll get baseball back on the field before this summer's over. The great Buck Martinez. You see him do national games on television. He is no doubt a super talent. I, I, I find it fascinating. When they talk about getting baseball back, and our guy Bob Nightingale has put out there on the USA Today about teams, not Arizona, not Florida, not Texas, which I think is still on the board. But they talk about playing in your own stadiums, and but making everybody closer. Which, by the way, Cody, who's called for this over the years? Uh, that will be you. I've been saying for years, it makes no sense that teams that are in the same cities or same regions are not in the same division. When I was growing up, the Atlanta Braves, the Cincinnati Reds were in the NL West. What says West Coast like Cincinnati and Atlanta? It was ridiculous. Think back in the day football. Some of you were 49er fans. How the heck was Atlanta and New Orleans in the same division with the Niners and the Rams? So this is actually this actually makes sense. For the first time ever, baseball and realignment, it makes sense. So the New York Yankees play in New York. You know who who else plays? Is there another team in New York, Cody? Uh, there'd be the New York Metropolitans. Huh. They're in the same city. They're both in New York City. Queens and the Bronx. Hey, who's just right up north from them? Uh, that'd be the Blue Jays. And? Boston. Wow, that makes sense. By the way, what what borders... New Jersey. Pennsylvania. And who plays in Pennsylvania? The Phillies. And? My beloved Pirates. And you, you know what's not far from there is 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 Washington, D.C. And the Nationals there. And about not that far from the Nationals is the Baltimore Orioles. I mean, the only two teams that are not that close are the teams in Florida. But that's still a short flight. This all makes sense. Yankees, Mets, Red Sox, Nationals, Baltimore, Phillies, Pirates, Blue Jays, Rays, Marlins. They're all on the East Coast. They're all close to each other. It makes sense. How about out West? Who's in the Bay Area? Giants and the A's. Makes sense that they're in the same division. Doesn't make sense that they're not in the same division. And the Dodgers and the Padres and the Angels – and the and and the Mariners in Arizona, everybody's on the West Coast. The only thing that doesn't make sense is the Rockies, Rangers, and Houston. But that would be your West. 
in the Central. These teams are all near each other. Chicago Cubs and White Sox, Brewers, Cardinals, Royals, Reds, Indians, Twins, Tigers. Only team that really doesn't make sense, but you got to put them somewhere. That's the Atlanta Braves. Finally, we could have actual divisions where people from, I mean, you're trying to tell me for A's you want, if I'm the A's and I'm looking to get better attendance and I get to play the Dodgers and the Giants, attendance, I guarantee, is going up. It makes sense. It has never made sense to me how Yankees, Mets, White Sox, Cubs, Giants, even as a little kid, I'm like, why are they not in the same division? And now it finally, maybe this will finally knock some sense. Like I said, the divisions over the years have been ridiculous. Braves, Reds, Astros were in the NL West. Come on. That's a joke. Now, baseball has realigned a little bit. But I got to tell you, having East Coast teams play each other, Central teams play each other, and West Coast teams play each other, it just makes sense. And I see he has chimed in. Before we play his open, can we play his home run from game five? Really one of the greatest highlights I've ever heard in my life. Can we please play that, Cody? The strike one pitch from the right-hander, Sutton. And there's the curve. Hits deep to left field. Back goes Buckner. The curveball is hit out of here. And it's two to nothing. Bossy gets the home run. Wednesday is known as Hump Day for everyone during the work week. But on A's Cast Live, Wednesday means one thing. It's time for 30 uninterrupted minutes with the two-time World Series champion, two-time All-Star, two-time Rawlings Gold Glove winner, A's analyst on NBC California, and the face of the franchise, Ray Fossey. I got to tell you, Foss, yesterday in the postgame show, I was ripping Alvin Dark for pinch hitting for you in game four. You don't pitch hit for Ray Foss. <laughs> but what did Jim Holt do? I, I don't, I, what, did he hit a double? <laughs> yeah, and throw in a couple of runs. That's all right. I was there in the final and, you know, got to play the next night, hit the home run off Sutton. Oh, by the way, in our great side-by-side, Cody did a great job. I know you, you worked there. Ken Korak and I had the side-by-side game one of the World Series. I remember that uh, the great Vin Scully was saying, well, you know, the scouting report on Ray Fossey throwing a lot of breaking balls. Well, Don Sutton threw me one game five and hung it and I crushed it. So yeah, that was, that was a great postseason. I, I, I must admit personally, uh, just because um, of the home run against Grant Jackson in game two, when the A's were down, actually we lost the first game to the Orioles uh, in the league championship series and then hit the home run off of Grant Jackson, Kenny Holtzman with a complete, game and getting a chance to play in the world series and uh, get the Dodgers in five games. So it was a fun, fun 1974. And uh, it was great that everybody got a chance to relive some of the great teams in those early seventies. How much fun is it to hit a home run in the world series? (laughs) 
You know, Tony, I'll be honest with you. I didn't even think about it until watching it, hearing it as you just played it. But, you know, when when you get involved in playing a game of baseball, you don't really think about anything. And I know people say, wow, you know, you got 50,000 fans in the stands. How do you do it? You know, you're oblivious to everything that's going on. You're concentrating on your pitcher and what he's throwing. And when you get a chance to put a bat in your hand, you're concentrating on facing a pitcher. So it's it's totally different. It's more of after the fact, and you've had some great guests on uh, during this period of time, we're reliving those uh, those World Series games, and and I'm sure Joe Rudy, Sal Bando, Gene Tennis, guys that you've had on, Raleigh Fingers, Reggie, different guys, you know, could probably say the same thing. You get wrapped in what you're doing, and you think more about it when it's over and years later, as fans, uh, we are all getting a chance to experience. So you've seen it all in Ace history, and hopefully at some point we're going to start talking about the 1989 team. Uh, mm-hmm. When you look back at that, I mean, the 89 team is just stacked. Yes. If your 70s teams played the 89 team, how do you think it goes? Interesting that you should say that because uh, being a broadcaster in 89, which was I started in 86, so you do the math, and I was the master of ceremonies because the unfortunate earthquake that occurred uh, before game three, baseball or the World Series was shut down for about 10 days. So we were not able to celebrate with a parade. Uh, the celebration in the clubhouse was very subdued. And we had a, um, a kind of a celebration at Jack London Square where I was the master of ceremonies. We had the players. I introduced them. Some said some words. Others didn't. Uh, but I compared it. And I remember saying during that that introduction of the players was that, Fortunately, that I was able to play in the 70s, and I could compare some of those teams to the 1989. And I'll never forget, Carney Lansford came up to me afterwards and said, thank you. I said, what do you mean? He says, for for saying what you said, because I'm sure that the 89 team, while they did not win three in a row, they went to the World Series three consecutive years and won in 89, but they had the starting pitching. They had the defense. They had a tremendous bullpen, obviously, with Eckersley coming out and, and different guys to, to set him up. And I would not name all those guys, but Eckersley was the closer. But they had the bashers. And you would think with the offense they had, that they could just outscore everybody. But they, like the teams in the 70s, did exactly the same thing. And that was score just enough runs to win. And you had Dave Stewart and you had Bob Welsh and Mike Moore and uh, Storm Davis, the four-man rotation that you could put out there. And Dave Stewart started game one, just like Catfish started game one of all the series. And the A's won. Then usually the A's won when Dave Stewart started. And so there was some great comparisons to those teams. So to answer your question about playing against each other, it, first of all, I think it would have been a low-scoring game. And it would have been very good defense, very good pitching. And who knows how many innings we would have played because maybe nobody scores any runs because they were so good. Both teams were so good in those respects of, of the aspects of the play in the game of baseball, which, you know, again, I've said many times, pitching and defense is going to win you games. Both of those teams had. And unfortunately, as Tony LaRusso and the players from the 80, late, what, 88, 89, and 90 said, if we could have won all three, that would have been great. Winning one was okay, but to have the opportunity to go to the World Series three consecutive but lose two of the three, it was kind of unfortunate. But uh, to win the one they did, but a very good team, that they were able to put on the field on a daily basis and do exactly what the A's did in the 70s, and that was get off to good starts and have the great pitching and defense to be able to win and go into postseason. But who wins, Ray? 
Oh, man, that's tough. I, I would have to – listen, I would have to put uh, Catfish up against anybody and the bullpen – you know, and, and again, let's not forget that Raleigh could come in as he did in game one, pitch four and a third innings, or he could pitch three or four innings. Dennis Eckersley probably – because of what Tony La Russa started in 87, where Dennis Eckersley became the closer, wanted him to pitch one inning and maybe three or four times a week versus Raleigh could pitch four innings, three innings, two innings, whatever, in back-to-back-to-back games. It didn't matter. So I would say I'm going to go with my teams in the 70s and just say in a one-game, winner-take-all, I'm going to take my chances because I know Reggie's going to come through with the bat. I know that Campy's going to get on a Billy North steal a base and, you know, fundamentally sound baseball and, and get the guy over, get him in. And, you know, Catfish didn't need, as he said, just give me one or two and that's it. Stewart, Dave Stewart said the same thing, but uh, I know the guys in the eighties, late eighties aren't going to want me to say that, but I was fortunate to play on those teams in the seventies. I could see what they could do on a daily basis. And especially in postseason, I take my chances with that team or those teams in the seventies. Now, when you have Dave Stewart on or, you know, Dennis Eckersley and they talk about 89 and they say, Ray doesn't know what he's talking about. That's fine. That's my opinion. So you, uh, you, you ask, you asked me and I told you. So, you know, let's not forget too, that the A's 72, three and four won all three. Yes. They won all three. And so yeah. the, the, the teams in the 88, 89 and 90 won one of three. So, that in itself should give some credence to the success of the team in the early 70s. Yeah, and they lost to the Dodgers, and then they got swept by the Reds. So, I That's mean, right. I mean, you, you, you and, that, and that one to the Reds was bad. I mean, I, I was in high school still oh, at the time, and I, that, was, that, was, that was ugly. But Tony, I, I, again, i never forget, uh, we, we were at Oakland Airport and heading back to Cincinnati because the first two games were back there. And all the fans had their brooms out. And I said, oh, please don't do that. I said, because, you you know, you, you just don't want to have a, a, a rally sending your team off to play a team and bring your brooms out. And, you know, they're thinking, hey, the team just won, swept the, uh, the Giants of the World Series in 89 to play in the Reds. And, hey, it's going to be another sweep. But the Reds did everything right. And, you know, Jose Rio was was pretty good pitcher, the former athletic pitching for the Reds. But uh, it was unfortunate that it was the sweep of the other direction. Now. The, the person and the people I felt badly about, and, you know, because of what happened in 1919, the players only realized games one through four as far as the monetary value, and that, that makes the, the World Series share so high. It's games five, six, and seven that the bulk of that money goes to ownership. But if you think in 88, it was a five-game series, 89 and 90, four-game sweep. So the Haas family generated only – money from game five of the 1970 AR 1988 world series. So I felt badly during that period of time, because while there was a lot of success for the organization, they could have really benefited more if the games had gone deeper, but uh, nobody ever goes into the world series and say, let's stretch it out to seven. Uh, we want to try to win four as quickly as possible. And that's exactly what the A's did in 89. And unfortunately the Reds did in 1990. You know, once we get uh, life back to normal, and you get a chance to go to the Baseball Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. I think it's on, I can't remember which level it's on, but they have every single World Series ring. And it's really right. cool. For going, you know, the way back rings to the, the, the monster rings now. But the one ring that always stood out to me, it was just beautiful, was the Cincinnati Reds from 1990. 
the 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 jewel is a red ruby with a, just a C in diamonds. It's yeah. a beautiful World Series ring. It was just I I I look at that one. I mean there there's there's some great ones. Some of the Yankees, but I just that that red with the white and just just the the ruby and the diamonds. It, it, it that's a, I don't know if you've ever seen that ring, but it's a sharp World Series ring. Well, I did in 19 or 2004 when Dennis Eckersley and Lon Simmons were inducted into Cooperstown. Uh, I was fortunate that the A's, uh, well, we went back. Uh, Bill King um, Bill King and I, and I can't remember, some other people went back. But it was nice to be asked and invited to go back during that period of time. So I, I saw all those rings that you're talking about. But I, but I have to say that, Charlie Finley was so confident, and it was my understanding that when a World Series ring was made, the mold of the ring stayed with, I think, Balfour, who uh, makes the rings, uh, at least I, I think they made the A's in the 70s. But the mold is there, so if something happens and, you know, lost, stolen, whatever, they can remake it. But Charlie Finley said, you know, we're going to win every year. Just keep that mold available because we're just going to make – if you look at all three of the World Championship rings of the 72, 3, and 4 – they're all similar. And on the side of the ring, uh, Charlie put a three-leaf clover. And then he actually had it designed for uh, to 75. He said, keep it alive in 75. And he, he said, we're just going to keep winning. It didn't happen. But those rings, I'm sure people can look at those. Well, there's only two teams that had uh, more than three consecutive World Series, or at least three, and that was the A's and the Yankees. So maybe the Yankees, when they won their five, I don't know, and I can't remember what those rings looked like. But I do know that in the 72, three, and four, uh, those rings were very similar. I have two of those, and uh, uh, they are very similar in, in respect of uh, um, nothing that stands out like you're talking about with the Reds, but that was something that they won in 90. They had not won what was previously in the 70s, maybe 70. I don't remember, but I, they, I know they beat the Red Sox in 75. So sometimes the, the time span in between, um, you know, they want to make sure the ring is, is very nicely done. And I'm sure the Nationals – did you see, by the way, the Nationals said they're not going to accept their rings except when fans are in the stands? No, I From didn't the World Series ring? Yeah, I, I saw it, which I think is great, you know, yeah. because the whole idea when you go out and you're introduced and, uh, you know, you, you're presented your world championship ring. So – but I, I had read that recently that they decided they're not going to do it. But, uh, but yeah, the 1990 season uh, was one that, if you recall – um, the one guy named Jose Canseco kept saying, why do we have to keep playing in postseason all the time? <laughs> and so Sandy Alderson took care of that in 92 when he traded him off the on-deck circle to the Texas Rangers. And, you know, they, he, he got a chance then to go home at the end of the season because uh, the Rangers, unfortunately, weren't doing anything until Ron Washington took over. But, uh, you know, you, you, you play the game starting in spring training, the regular season, and you hope to be on the dance floor in October – this year, maybe November, but uh, in October is when postseason takes place. And if you're one of the two teams standing and the final team standing, there's nothing more special than that because that is why you play the game of baseball to try to get to October and run the table and be world champions and have those rings presented to you opening day of the next year whenever the, the, the season resumes. Uh, you mentioned Wash. Happy birthday. Today's uh, Wash's, I believe, his 68th birthday. Wash is, is the best. He has more energy than probably any 21-year-old on this earth. I mean, it's just amazing some of the great things that he has done and uh, helping infielders. And, and I know Wash, whenever uh, he went to Atlanta, and he went there to interview for the manager's job. 
but they liked him so much and said, you know, I think of Brian Stickner that they had and decided to keep, but they said, would you mind staying to be our third base coach? And he's closer to home in uh, Louisiana and he decided to stay, but you could see some of the things that he was doing with the infielders of the Braves that he did for Marcus Simeon. And he always called Marcus, Marcus, Marcus Simeon. He's, I said, Wash, what's going to happen to Marcus whenever you leave? He said, Marcus knows exactly what to do. And you see how great Marcus Simeon has played since Wash took over. He did a great job under Mike Gallego. Then Wash comes and did a, a, an exceptional job with Marcus Simeon. And to me, Tony, I think he is the most improved shortstop defensively that I've ever seen in this game to go from where he was. You're thinking that every time the ball was hit to him, oh, no, what's going to happen? But now he's going to make spectacular plays. And that's how much he has worked as hard as he had. He was out there every day with Ron Washington prior to, to even the workouts beginning, working on his defense and watch talking to him about footwork and all those things. I mean, he did it to everybody. I mean, and how about with, with Eric Chavez winning the gold gloves? And he, he gave him one. He said, to watch, not without you. And Eric Chavez, when he started playing third base, he prayed that the ball would not be hit to him. He won six consecutive gold gloves. That's how much Ron Washington meant to Eric Chavez. So happy birthday, Wash, a great man. And actually, supposed to see him this year, uh, two games in the Bay Area in Oakland and two games in Atlanta. So let's hope somehow, some way we can see him and uh, wish him a belated happy birthday. You know, this realignment that was put out there by the USA Today and Bob Nightingale, you know, it's is it the whole way that baseball has been for years. I know you heard me talk about when he first uh, got on where, you know, years ago where Atlanta in the Eastern time zone, Cincinnati are in the National League West. I think it's a joke even today that the Rangers and the Astros are in the ALS. My rule of thumb is if I can't fly to you on a Southwest flight in two hours, (laughs) you should be in the same division. You know, I agree with you because you think of the Rangers and the Astros every time they play on the West Coast, and since they're in the Western division, that means the Angels, the Mariners, the A's, all those games start, night games, 7.05. That's 9.05 local time. Every one of those night games are in that time zone. So it's really unfair to the fans of those two cities. But I think also uh, the scheduling. This year it was going to be, I think, Mickey Morbido had said that, uh, and looking at the schedule, I think to two of the three trips that the A's were going to make to Texas Two of those three were going to be with playing the Astros and the Rangers. Matter of fact, I think they're supposed to be just finishing up um, a series on the Astros over the weekend and the Rangers right now. But, but you know, for, for several years, the A's would go to Arlington and then to go to someplace else and then come back home and then later go to Houston and go someplace else. You know, why wouldn't you put the two teams back to back? But to your point, uh, they should be in the Central Division. Uh, somehow, some way, they should be there. Now, the, the one team that I think all this with the Arizona Diamondbacks, because remember, when they came into the league, they were supposed to be in the league, National League, for two years and then convert to the Western Division of the American League. But the Diamondbacks, from what I read, said, hey, no, we're a National League team. We should stay where we are and be in the National League West. Well, it's great for those teams, the Dodgers, the Padres, the, the Giants, to go to Arizona. But just think if the Diamondbacks had been in the Western Division along with the Angels, the A's, the Mariners, the Diamondbacks, and one other team, uh, which you could pick one of those teams, it, it could have been a good division lineup. But, uh, but alignment. But I think when, when the, uh, the Astros went to the National League, or American League from the National League, I think the 
Commissioner Bud Selig was part of that and the realignment, um, there, there was something that went on with that. But, but I agree with you that, that, that when you go out of a time zone, it should not be a time zone that's going to be restrictive to, you know, when the A's go to Houston and, and Arlington, Texas, play those two teams, 705 start, that means it's 505 in the Bay Area. So it, it, it just changes everything. Whereas when you have the Angels, the Mariners, and the A's, same time zone, then everything starts at the same time. But uh, I agree with you. The, the realignment, while it sounds good, those two teams under the current system should be someplace other than in the American League West. Hey, and for all those people that want less flights because we're worried about we're worried about <laughs> climate change, uh, that's less flights for major. That's less flights for the A's because they're going to bus to San Francisco. Same thing, San Francisco bus into Oakland. Dodgers and Angels are busing to each other. They're busing to San Diego. It'd be less flights, more money for the teams, better for the climate. I mean, I could tell you so many different ways why this is better than what we got right now. Well, Tony, and you're talking about busing. You think about the A's and, and busing back and forth to San Francisco. But let's say hypothetically, the A's go to Los Angeles, play the Dodgers three, bus it to Anaheim, bus it to San Diego. There you, you can go. play nine games, you know, and bust it all the way and then fly back to Bay Area. So, no, there, there are a lot of uh, good things. And I think what Bob Nightingale wrote, I read the article and obviously the, the owners. The thing that I was happy with is hearing at least some of the upper management owners talking about the possibility of that. And, you know, to realign because, you know, the travel, uh, I mean, you, you look at what the A's do right now. Um, and then they started probably the last three or four years. If there's a, like the A's were playing um, the Mariners, I think to start this road trip, it was the Mariners on a Sunday with an off day in Cleveland. The A's would have been flying to Cleveland following the game on Sunday, spending the off day in Cleveland on Monday to get acclimated to the East Coast time zone and then play Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday on to, I think it was Houston and then Texas uh, to play the Rangers and then back home. But, you know, what I'd seen, something I'd never seen in the past, and that is flying after the game that you previously play. I mean, obviously you do it if you're going to play the next day, but to spend the off day in the city where you're going to be playing to get acclimated to the time zone. And for the A's, anytime they go east, I mean, they were doing it also going to Anaheim and Seattle if there was an off day to get there, to get comfortable, get settled in, and then play the game the following day after spending the off day in that city versus at home and then flying in, as Mickey Morbido would always do, depending on the flight time, uh, the, the day on the off day, which, which are run the off day, and maybe that was consideration also, spend the off day and have you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner and, and in the city that you're going to and get acclimated. But uh, times have changed. But, you know, the divisional lineup that um, alignment that Bob Nightingale came up with on USA Today, uh, I think it makes a lot of sense, except for those two teams. Even Colorado's probably – too far away uh but i don't know that you could do anything other than that for for the western uh alignment but tony how about four divisions four divisions yeah. of you know and, and do it that way to where you could really um you know isolate and and you know but i i think to do the three ten three ten team divisions was one consideration but i was looking at it and i think it had been brought up previously to take the united states separated uh, uh separated in four zones and take the teams in those zones, and that makes up four divisions. And, you know, there was talk about expansion to add two more teams to get to 32, where you had eight four-team divisions. And, you know, so a lot of possibilities. But 
Um, this is at least a start if that's what they're going to do. Fossey, you are the best. Be safe, and we will talk to you next week. No, you're the best, and Cody's the best. You know, I always say that, and I can't close this out with saying what you guys are doing to keep baseball in the minds of the wonderful A's fans and all the people. And uh, so continued success. And, again, thank you for what you guys did on the uh, the six games. You did the pregame shows. We did a great side-by-side. It was great working with Ken Korak. And I think the A's fans got a chance to see some pretty good teams in the 70s. And let's hope it continues because the A's in Oakland have had a lot of success. And we can continue doing that until we get back to playing some real baseball. My favorite highlight, game five, hanging curveball, Don Sutton, go deep. My favorite highlight of all time. <laughs> oh, I loved it too, man. I, I loved it. That was a lot of fun. But uh, it was great that Cody was able to pull up that uh, the Jim Simpson, I think Cody said, and, you know, and the great Monty Moore on the call on TV side. But, no, it was a lot of fun and uh, a lot of fun to play on those teams and great to relive those wonderful memories. So thank you to all of you people for doing that. All right, Foss, talk to you next week. I look forward to it. Have a good one, buddy. Bye-bye. The great Ray Fossey. Coming up next, we're going to be talking to a man that broadcast for the Orioles and was a part of this game on this day years ago, 2015, where the Orioles played a game in front of no fans. We'll talk to Jim Hunter next right here on A's Cast Live. Now back to A's Cast Live, broadcasting from the town Here's Chris Townsend. All righty. How we doing this, Cody? Are we calling him or is he calling us? Uh, we're going to call We're gonna call Jim here in a, in a few minutes. Millennial technology. Hey, he has a landline, so, though, so that's good. You what? He has a landline, so that's good. That's very rare. Well, he's an old On guy. this date, 2015. The Orioles defeated the White Sox 8-2. to And the A's had no spectators due to the riots in Baltimore. And Cody looked it up. The game wasn't on national television, but I'm like, wait a minute, I watched it. So then I thought, well, obviously I have the code for uh, MLB.com, so I probably watched it on my computer. It was a trip. I remember them doing live cut-ins. I think it was on New York. They were doing live cut-ins, and I remember them showing all the stuff that you were mentioning before, like the ball Uh, dropping, no one grabbing it and all that. Come on, man. We've seen games in the past that had 2,000, 3,000 people in it. I mean, two years ago, I was in Miami. It was the last weekend of the season, and it's the Reds against the Marlins. And it's a Saturday night. So that day, I went to the Miami Hurricane football game. And then, for which, you want a day. I went down to South Beach, jumped in the ocean, because I always wanted, I guess I got to go to South Beach. I then went to the famous Clevelander in South Beach and had the frozen drinks that they're famous for. I then went to a Miami Hurricane game. And then from the hurricane game, Ubered over to Marlins Park and went to the Marlins Reds. And I got to tell you, that's where they have that. They have like the bobblehead Hall of Fame and they've got the Ray Fossey catcher bobblehead. Uh, They had like Barry Zito. Um, 
But I remember running into a guy in the elevator, and he's like, oh, just one more after this, because, I mean, the Marlins were bad. There was nobody there. I don't know what the announced attendance was for this Reds-Marlins Saturday night game, but literally there was nobody there. I mean, it might have been a couple thousand maybe. And I was talking about being the Clevelander also has that famous pool bar inside the stadium. There was more people in the Clevelander than it seemed that they were in the stands. So we have seen quite a few games where the attendance wasn't so hot. Doesn't surprise me, especially that it happened in uh, Florida and Miami because they, they haven't been able to draw even with a brand new stadium. Now, I was able to find an audio, I was able to find a highlight from this. It was uh, Gary Thorne on the call. Adam Jones was up to bat. And uh, with no one there, Gary Thorne did his inner Jim Nance. Because nobody's in the yard about the appropriate way to broadcast. So with Adam Jones coming up here in the seventh inning, Jones approach to the plate with Carroll delivering. Jones will whack the son of a gun to center field. That's very deep. It's deep, and it's off the base of the wall. He will head to second base. Adam Weird. Jones has a double, and that green jacket is well within reach, Jim. I just love that he whacks the son of a gun. <laughs> I mean, why wouldn't you? I mean, people are still listening on the radio. Why would you not do a regular radio call? Oh, that was TV. Gary Thorne was on TV. That was even. That's well, why it was TV? even better. <laughs> yeah. I love uh, Gary's great. We've had him on the program before, and uh, you know, famous for all the years doing hockey on ESPN. That are we are we going to talk to Jim? Yeah, I'm calling him right now. I mean, it, it was obviously a total different deal. Now, I mean, this was this was these were these were riots. I mean, it was a, it's it was a dark time in Baltimore, and it's been. It's really affected the city for many years. And Jim Hunter from the Baltimore Orioles now joins us. Chris Townsend here on A's Cast. Thank you, Jim, for taking the time. We, we really appreciate it. Hey, my pleasure. It's actually good to be able to do something. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the like, everybody's like, oh, of course, I'll talk baseball. Let's do this. Um, my, my wife has to remind me what day it is because every day seems to be the same. Yeah, we're, 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 we're Bill Murray. We're, we're, we're reliving the movie Groundhog Day. Yep, exactly. So take us back to 2015, because on this day was that infamous game where there were no fans in the stands, and the Orioles would beat the White Sox 8-2. to two. Uh, You were a part of the broadcast. Take us back to that day and what it was like. Well, you, you, you actually have to go back to Monday, a few days before that, that was the night the riots began, and the Orioles and White Sox actually played the game. And it was kind of a surreal moment because for a while, as it looked like things were heating up downtown, fortunately, the part of town where the, the main riots were were not near Camden Yards. And fans didn't know, well, should I leave or should I stay? And then the, the next two days, the games got canceled. Now, the Thursday game, both teams had a day off. And it was decided that it would be played in the daytime. It was a one o'clock game. Uh, and because of the fact that the Baltimore police had, <laughs> had other duties, you know, with the riots going on, uh, the decision was made by the Orioles, the White Sox, and the commissioner's office that they would play the game without fans. And it was the strangest 
eerie feeling that I've ever been involved with as a broadcaster. No doubt about it. And it looks like when we get this thing going again, that th- this is what's going to happen is there's not going to be fans and it's just going to be players, television, radio, probably some security, but it's not going to be a whole lot of people in the ballpark. Obviously, this is a pandemic. These are not riots. It's going to be a different scenario, but we wanted to bring you on to to just kind of get the feel of what it was like and what was it re- what was it like for the players? These guys are playing in front of nobody for the first time in their careers. Yeah, it was very, very unusual, and a, a couple of memories from that game. Caleb Joseph uh, caught that game. And as he was running out to the bullpen to warm up Ibado Jimenez, who started, he pretended he was high-fiving fans along the first baseline by the, by the grandstand. It was absolutely hilarious. Uh, and then Chris Davis pretending to sign autographs up the first baseline. You know how players go out right before uh, first pitch and they'll stretch and maybe run in the outfield. And uh, the players obviously did that that day. And Chris pretended to sign autographs. But the thing, the thing that was amazing was that there were some fans that did show up outside, and there's one gate uh, out beyond right center field, or left center field, excuse me, where if you stand behind that gate, you, you could pretty much see what was going on, although you couldn't see the whole field. And those fans were cheering as if they were in the ballpark, even though there was nobody in the ballpark. And the, one, the other stark contrast that the Orioles – one that day, they scored six runs in the bottom of the first. Chris Davis hit a three-run home run off Jake Samarja. And the, the O's extra set where Rick Dempsey and I did the pregame and postgame show is on the second press level. The broadcast is on the third level. And Gary Thorne and Jim Palmer were d- directly above us. And when Chris Davis's ball left the ballpark, you could actually hear Gary in real time in the stadium, not on television, just his voice booming out that it was a home run. And all the players in the dugout could also hear him. So they would turn and look and go, Gary, what are you doing? Because normally when there's a whole bunch of fans, especially yeah. a home game, they're cheering an Oriole home run and you don't hear that. Uh, but because there was no one in there and the acoustics are so good, uh, his voice was booming all over the ballpark. So it was a, it was a really interesting kind of a, a, a weird, surreal atmosphere. And the, and the other extension to that is the Orioles lost three home games. After that game on Thursday, Tampa Bay was supposed to come in, and they moved the games to Tampa Bay. The Orioles were the home team, but after that game on the Thursday, the no-fan game, the, we all had to get on a plane and fly to Tampa and, uh, and play three home games in a road stadium. So there are a lot, a lot of strange things about that. Wow, I was just thinking because the way like the Coliseum is, is the television and the radio broadcast. So that's for home and away. They're all next to each other. If there's nobody in the stands, you're going to have four different broadcasts that you can hear all, all over the stadium. Right. And, and in that on that day, you had White Sox TV in booth one, Orioles TV in booth two. Orioles radio and radio one visiting radio and radio three all on the uh, third level. Uh, and then Rick and I on the, on the old extra set that they built at the ballpark is, is right next to the press box on the second level. So uh, I, I would think that, you know, uh, Hawk Harrelson, of course, was still the announcer for the White Sox. Then I'm sure he overheard Gary's home run call as well, because you're right. He's in the very next booth. 
Oh, you're going to hear, get up, get up, strap. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not for Chris Davis, though. Yeah, you know, and and the, the other thing that was unique about that is anyone from the media was barred from going into the stands. So if a writer, for instance, wanted to go sit a few innings behind home plate just to soak in the atmosphere, they were banned. And there was a, an authenticator who went around and picked up every foul ball so they could be authenticated as real foul balls from the no-fan game. And I actually do have one on my, my mantle here. Uh, but uh, it was interesting how they said you can't go onto the field. You can't go into the stands during the game. Uh, they, the only thing they were able to do was uh, Buck Showalter's pre- and post-game press conference. You know, our thoughts and prayers are out for Trey Mancini, who we have had on the program before, uh, hearing about his colon cancer. That was just shocking for 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 us to hear. He's such a good guy and a young man, and, you know, our thoughts and prayers go out to him. Yeah, and, you know, my, my wife and I were talking about that last night because he uh, he had a Zoom press conference. Uh, I think that might have been today, but he released that long statement yesterday. And it shows you how good our team doctors are. Dr. Curtin was probably at the, the top of this, the, the team in Turnus. Uh, but it, it, think about it. His, uh, his levels were down in, on the blood test, the iron levels, and, and that sent up a shockwave. So they gave another blood test, and they were even lower in the second one. And that's when the doctor said, okay, we got to get to the root of this. Let's go get the test. And thank God they did, because six days after he was diagnosed, he was in Baltimore having the surgery. And uh, from what I understand, he, he still is here because he's going to do his chemo here in Baltimore. I'm assuming he's at Johns Hopkins, although I don't think they released that. But, yeah, he's one of the best guys you're ever going to meet. You know, solid kid, went to Notre Dame. Uh, really has a lot of faith. He's a you know, practicing Catholic, and he's not shy of telling you about that. And hopefully, as he said, look, if I can't play this year, so be it. But I'm going to beat this, and I'm going to be stronger next year. So we're, we're all pulling for him because right now he's the face of the franchise. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're, we're praying for him. Uh, our, our other good friend, Bob Nightingale, released what potentially could happen in baseball. Uh, where you have three divisions and you put the teams for the most part who are around each other in the same division and you just play inside that division. And the way I've been selling it is I've always wanted this. I, I, I've always thought it's ridiculous that the A's and the Giants are not in the same division and we're not in the same division with the Angels and the Dodgers and the Padres, like an all, like a, an all California division. I've always joked that if I can't get to you on a Southwest flight in two hours, we shouldn't be in the same division. And I'm looking at you guys, and it's Yankees, Mets, Red Sox, Nationals, Orioles, Phillies, Pirates, Blue Jays, uh, Tampa, Miami. You'd have to get on a flight to go to Tampa, Miami. But for the most part, you want to talk about climate change. For your guys' division, you guys could train to most of these places instead of being in airplanes. Well, and that's one of the uh, advantages of being an AL East team, although this would expand on that. The longest flight is from Baltimore to Tampa when we go there three times a year to play the Rays, and that's maybe a two-hour and ten-minute flight. So, you, you know, in, in fact, it's funny you mentioned trains. Very often when the team goes on the road to play the Yankees, especially if, it's, if the getaway day is a day game, they, they will charter an Amtrak train, and it picks you up in downtown Baltimore, drops you up in downtown New York City, you hop on the bus and you're at the hotel. So the travel is going to be so much easier. I mean, Philadelphia is, I would say, 
probably 100 miles north of Baltimore. The Nationals ballpark is 35 miles from the parking lot of Camden Yards. And I'm sure the way they would do the schedule is if you're going on the road, you're probably going to play the Rays and Miami on the same trip since you're already going to be in Florida. So it's, it's, it's an interesting thing. You know, I, I was listening yesterday uh, to one of the national radio shows, and apparently, you know, they always claim these uh, unnamed sources because they don't want to <laughs> rat out their, their, their guys giving them the information. But apparently they want to start by the 4th of July and play at least 110 games. And if they do that, they're going to be playing baseball through October, which means you're going to be doing the postseason in November, which means you're going to have to go to warm weather sites or domes. So it's going to be very fascinating to see once they announce and make it official how this will all play out. But, but I agree with you. I think the, the rivalries, at least for this truncated season, are going to really be intense because the Orioles and the Nationals – really have become a good rivalry. You know, of course, now the Nats are defending world champions and the Orioles are rebuilding. But, you know, the commissioner stuck a team 35 miles from Camden Yards. And, uh, you know, there's been a lot of ramifications because of that as well. So it should be fun. I mean, I, I hope it gets back. I know I keep seeing on social media how, how anxious everyone is just to be able to go do something normal. You know, my wife and I went to the uh, supermarket today. And, you know, you're, you're in the store and they got arrows on the, on the floor go one way up this aisle and one way up that aisle. And, you, you know, you're in there with a mask and it's just, it's, it's incredible. I mean, and our governor was one of the first to shut down the state and that goes back to March 16th. So it's, it's going to be good. Uh, you know, it's going to be good to get back just to have some semblance of normalcy. And as you mentioned earlier, even though it's likely there won't be fans in there, at least you could turn on the television or turn on the radio and get to enjoy a sport. Yeah, I literally just did. I did the historical trip with my kids in late February. We went to D.C. where we went to the White House and, and the Capitol Building and Mount Vernon. Did, and then we took the train up to Philadelphia, Independence Hall, and then the Liberty Bell, and then the train up to New York and took him to a couple of Hamilton and Wicked and 9-11 Museum. And it, it's so easy to get around the East Coast like that. In trains, it's a make because we don't have that in California, as you know. It's far different in the East Coast than the West. Oh yeah, and and the fact that Baltimore is considered a, a major hub for Amtrak, you you have the advantage of either getting the Excella, which doesn't make every stop going either direction, or you can get on what they call locals, and it does make every stop, but you still can get there. And it's very convenient. I mean, you know, Wilmington, Delaware is on the way, and then you go to Philly, and then you know you pass Trenton, New Jersey, and my native New Jersey state. Um, but you're right. It's, it's very easy to get around, especially if, if you don't mind, you, you could even drive. If you lived here and you wanted to do a tour, like you just described, you could drive to all those places, probably cost you a fortune to park, especially in New York, but uh, you could just as easily get there. But it, it really is a blessing to be able to say to yourself, Hey, you know what? I, I'm going to hop on a train and, and go to New York city. And my wife and I have done that several times in the past uh, for for several years in a row, about five years in a row, in January, we would go to New York to see a, a theater play. And what we would do is we would go up on Friday, have dinner with relatives, go to the matinee on Saturday, Saturday night have dinner with relatives, and then come back on Sunday to Baltimore. And very often we would take the train because then you don't have to worry about parking your car. So you're right. I mean, the, t the train is a big difference maker, especially if this 10 three-team uh, divisions does come about. 
Jim, thank you so much for the time. This was a great conversation. Be safe, be well, and we'll talk to you once this season starts. Yeah, and I, I can't wait to shave my uh, coronavirus protest beard. I've, <laughs> I last shaved the morning of Good Friday, two days before Easter, and uh, I haven't shaved since. So uh, as soon as this thing ends and we're allowed to go do normal things, I'm going back to no, no whiskers. That's great. Take care, Jim. Thank you. All right, my pleasure. Thanks for checking in. Jim Hunter from the Baltimore Orioles. He was good. He was, uh, you know, I waited. I, I, I texted him this morning, and I was waiting for him to get back. I, so the, just behind the curtain, I, I reached out to first Buck Showalter, and I'm sure Buck's been getting hounded for requests on this because it happened five years ago. And then well, I didn't even try Jim Palmer because Jim Palmer, uh, after we had him on in, ball, in uh, Oakland, I don't think he's responded to me since. I tried Hawk. Hawk called me back. He's busy. And then I tried Jim Hunter, and we were able to get him, and he was great talking about it because it's, it's great to bring everyone inside, including us, because, you know, that was five years ago. We didn't know all the ins and outs about it, what happened at the ballpark. And to hear that Gary Thorne was yelling and Hawk being next to him, I can only imagine what Hawk was saying on TV because we've heard some of his calls when, when – when, oh, mercy. When Polly would hit a home run. So <laughs> it's, it was great to hear. But so I've said this a couple times on the show that Baltimore has not recovered from those riots. Right. I've, I've mentioned that a couple yeah. times. I'm telling you, it, it, it's it's dead. There's there's there their businesses. This, you know, one of my best friends, she used to live in Baltimore and. She, when I was telling her, she goes, "Oh, that 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 part of town was hopping." So this seafood restaurant, I can't remember the name of the seafood restaurant. They were so successful; they had two seafood restaurants in this Inner Harbor place. And they had to close one down, and I mean, the bars weren't packed. It was Saturday night before an NFL game. There's nothing going on. Then the bar. So we stayed at the hotel. Like, I looked from my hotel room, I looked into Camden Yards. I mean, literally, we were, I don't know, less than 100 yards from from the outfield. You know, that, that fence he's talking about that people can look through? Our hotel's like, the hotel we were at was like, because right behind that, right behind Camden Yards is, which is the most ridiculous police escort I've ever seen in my life. We had a, because... All NFL teams have police escorts wherever they go. We had a police escort from the hotel to the Ravens yard, which literally would be like a five-minute walk. We got on the bus, and you just went by Camden and pulled into – I'm like, really? You need a police escort to go less than a mile? <laughs> what, what's the Ravens stadium? Uh, is it an M&T Bank stadium? Yeah, they are all. Yeah. I, I should know. I watched them play the Steelers twice a year for my entire life. Beautiful stadium. Now, let me tell you something. Come game day on Sunday, Baltimore's packed. When it's not game day, there's nobody around. They have the they have those two. I can't remember the names of them, but they have the they have the two bars that are famous in baseball. The Brooks Robinson statue with the gold glove is right there. It's right next to our hotel. And the first night we went over there, there was no one in there. Like, I've seen them on TV before when you when you watch. They show all the people that are there before, you know, when you're watching Orioles games. Like, if the A's are playing the Orioles, they'll, you know, they'll pan the camera. There was nobody there. Baltimore's just dead. It really is sad. Because that, you know, the Orioles were a gold standard in baseball. They called it the Oriole way. 
and it just seems like everything is just um, they're in rebuild mode, and it's just it, it's bad. Coming up next, Will Leach from MLB.com. How did Carl Yastrzemski retiring, a radio prank, and Pete Rose getting hired by the Reds to be a play man, uh, a player manager? How this all works together, it's crazy, and you're going to find out next right here on A's Cast Live. Now back to A's Cast Live. Broadcasting from the town, here's Chris Townsend. I've never told that Musburger story, have I? The Target Field one? Yeah. I don't think so. I mean, we've talked about it, but I don't think you've told it on the program before. Here's the funniest thing. So I got us I got us three press passes. One for our engineer, the great Dave Sniff, who uh, is a program director of KFMB in San Diego and a long time been around, used to travel with the Padres. Brent's son and Brent. I have that pass. It's the broadcaster's pass that I can get into any ballpark. So here's the funny part of that. So the guy swings the door open as Brent's walking up, which I've never seen this. Like they these this this guy was waiting. Right. He was waiting. He couldn't wait for Brent to show up. And then all of a sudden he hands me Brent's son's pass. Because he thinks I'm Brent's son. And I go, no, I'm not. And and he goes, you're not Brent's son. I go, no, I work for the Oakland A's. He goes, oh. He totally he went from being like a little kid meeting Brent Musburger. And he was all happy thinking I'm Musburger's kid. And then he finds out I work for the Oakland A's. He's like, oh, so it's. They were they were they were giving away beanies, twins beanies that night. He's like, Mr. Musterberger, would you like a beanie? He ran and got him a beanie, and I went, What? I don't get one? Because I was the A's guy. <laughs> That's like, so I don't think you never told me that okay. part. So he went and got me a beanie, and, I, and my cousin uh, lives in Minnesota, who I was having dinner later that night, and I brought my cousin the beanie. Um, I'm serious. The minute we walked out into the regular public in the, in the lower bowl of Target Field. It, I now know what it was like to be with like Elvis Presley. Everybody knew him. And I felt like I, I became security. I had to like move him. I got to like, I got to, I, I got to, we got to get out of here. And everywhere we went. And finally I stashed Brent. They have this bar at Target Field. It's like a sports bar out in left field. And I stashed Brent in the corner. And we're having, <laughs> dude, we're having beer. I'm having beers with Brent Musburger at a Twins Royals games. He's watching, so they have all the college football games going on, and you know he's got juice on all these games. Um, but it was crazy. Cody, I like I, – I became like security. I've never been like – I mean, there was one Raider fan that was there that recognized me. So I got, I got recognized by <laughs> one person. But it was like being with Brent Musburger. It's like being with Elvis Pratt. Everywhere you go with him, everybody, everybody knows him. Everybody loves him. And it's young people, old people, everybody. It was crazy. I, I just want to know that the Raider fans see you and go, Townie, Townie. Yeah. Okay. I got the Townie, yeah. So, okay, so it wasn't confirmed it wasn't Fosse then. <laughs> no, I know. It was a Raider. That's the thing. Hey, the most downloaded thing on Raiders.com is my TV interviews with John Gruden. And so everywhere we go, there's somebody that's because everybody watches that. It's crazy. It's crazy to be walking around London in here. Townie. Tell you what, Townie, you need to get a haircut, man. Let me tell you something, man. That visor you got, man. 
You know, Tony, I like your style, man. I like how you go out. I like how you see the town. I respect that. I'll give you a little John Gruden story. So <laughs> I'm, I'm going on a uh, – my buddy Rob, Rob and Heather, my two friends in New York. Rob is taking me on a historic pub crawl Saturday in New York City in December. There's a good chance I've been exposed to the virus. Being in – being December – being there in February, <laughs> this thing was going all over New York, and I'm going all. So he takes me on a historic pub crawl where every pub was either like established in 18 this or early 19. This. I mean, it was these some of these places, they were so old, it was unreal. And as I'm walking, I, I went into the team room where all the food is to grab a water before I'm going to Uber over because we stayed in New Jersey. I look, I look into this one room, and Gruden is by himself alone. And I walk in, I'm like, what's up, coach? How you doing, Townie? And I go, hey, I don't know what you're doing today, but I'm going on a historic pub crawl. You want to go? And he and I, I, he laughed, and that's when he goes, man, I like how you do it, man. I like how you see everything. I wish more guys in this organization would do what you do, man. I like, I like your style, Town. I invited him. It would've, that would have been the best end to the story, too. It's like, so that night, my, myself and my friends and John Gruden <laughs> went on this, bu- this, this uh, pub crawl. And, you know, the next day the Raiders went out and they won 40 to 10. Gruden was dialing up all the right plays, Spider 2Y, Banana. They were all going, man. There was this one pub. It was like 18, established in like 1872. And they only sold, this place was slammed. You had to wait in line to get in. It was so cool because when, when, when you went in, it had all these badges from police officers and firemen from all these years being open in New York. You know, you've been open for a hundred and something years. And so all these badges, and they were all different. They all look, they only sold, they, they make their own beer and they only sold, they only sold, they only sell a dark beer and a light beer. And it's their own beer. There's no name of the beer. It's not like you're saying, can I have a Bud Light? Or can I have a Lagunitas? Or can I have, you know, whatever, Stone? You know, IPAs and ales. They only sold a light and dark beer. And you can't even get into the place. And I'm like, how are these? How, how does, like, really? With where we are today with beer, as you and I like to consume craft beer, uh, you and I are very into breweries. It was a dark and light beer, and that's it. That's and remarkable. they're printing money. If you need something good to read, uh, I think I sent it to you. If not, Eno Saris has a whole beer bracket. You can go check out the beers he has on there, and there's a bracket you can vote on the vote on the poll. It's a poll like you can vote on the best beers. So if you need something to look at, Eno's got you covered in the athletic. Really? Yeah. I'm very interested in that. Yeah, I'll see if I can find – I'll send it to you later today if I didn't already. My, my taste and Eno's taste are not always – because he likes hazy. I don't like hazy. I mean, come on, I'll drink anything. If, if all you got is a hazy IPA, I, I'm in. But if it's my choice, I'm not big. Like, like to me, I like, like Sculpin. It's a good one. Sculpin, Sculpin or Stone IPA. Those those would be my two go to. I also like Sierra Nevada Torpedo. If we're talking about you know standards, I go with Plenty of the Elder. Yeah, that's hard to get though. I have two of them in my fridge. My Whole Foods has it all the time. 
Are you serious? Yeah, I'll save you a bottle. By the way, how is your Whole Foods? Is there lines? What's it like? Yeah, there's lines to get in. So when I go, I usually just go to get, you know, several things. I'll go and get uh, bottles of wine for Wine Wednesday, which is today. Uh, so I'm stocked up on that. Uh, White Claw. Uh, yeah, I promise I'm not an alcoholic. And uh, Plenty of the Elder, and then we'll get, like, uh, milk or something if we need it. But I mainly go there for, for alcohol because it's so close. But there's you there's a line pretty much every time we go. Did you say White Claw? Yeah. It's 100 calories. It's good stuff. White Claw? It'll change your life. I'll bring it over. When we're allowed to hang out again, that's what I'm bringing over. If you if you bring me a White Claw, I'm going to pick it up, and I'm going to throw it at you. And then I'm going to have the twins TikTok it, and we'll put it up with Spencer. <laughs> yes, my dog, Spencer, if you didn't hear, King Charles Cavalier Spencer has now, it's like, uh, he's over 1,000 follows on TikTok. And my kids do not want me to promote it. They want to organically grow Spencer on TikTok. Well, I want to refine it. I don't use TikTok. I'm like, Sarah, I don't. I have the app, but I don't, I've never used it, and I've never posted. But I've, the only time I ever watch videos is when I see them posted on Twitter. All right. Will Leach from MLB.com joined me earlier today. Once again, we're going to tie in Cario Stremski, a radio prank, and Pete Rose becoming a player manager for the Cincinnati Reds. What is this voodoo? Here is Will Leach. Will, it's always great to have you on the program. How have you been? Uh, you know, doing the best I can. I don't know about you guys, but I'm still uh, – uh, I kind of miss baseball a little. I don't know if you guys have that feeling at all. I don't know if it's something anyone shares, but, yeah, I kind of miss baseball a lot right now. You know, what we've been doing, we've been celebrating the 1972, 1973, and 1974 World Series champion Oakland Athletics, and it's been a lot of fun – to watch old school baseball and just to see the greatness of the A's from that era and also just see how different the game was in the 70s. Yeah, it, it is remarkable because, you know, baseball has essentially the same rules that it's always had. There's 90 feet between bases, 60 feet, six inches between home plate. And obviously some themes are different but on the whole. You know, it's generally the same game, but it certainly doesn't really look that way when you watch it and forget just back to 72, 73. I mean, you've watched a game from, 10, 15 years ago, and it feels like an entirely different sport. Uh, I do feel like baseball is circular in a lot of ways and uh, cyclical, I guess would be the best way to put it. Uh, uh, Sometimes people come, uh, you know, a lot of things that go out of vogue come back a little bit, Uh, but the game is constantly changing. Uh, I think, though, to look back, not just did the game look a lot different than, I have to say also, boy, the jerseys looked so much better back then. Just everything was so much sharper. Even when they were ugly, they were more interesting uh, across the board. So uh, I think that's one thing I think about a lot. Even even it's like, okay, I don't think I want to wear that myself, but I love, to, I, I love the variety that it would give for a baseball game. Yeah, you look back and uh, we've seen some of these classic games and really, was there anything worse but also more beautiful then the old Houston Astros were the crazy colors coming across the jersey, and you're looking <laughs> at Nolan Ryan, you're just like, God, I miss those days. Yeah, and the star on the thigh. I always thought that was the strangest thing about those jerseys. There's a star on the thigh. I feel like we don't need decoration on baseball pants thighs. <laughs> yeah, but I tell you what, we've been looking at classic uniforms and and – the 1974 World Series, you want to talk about classic unis when you're looking at the Oakland A's 
and the Los Angeles Dodgers, 1972, the Oakland A's and the Cincinnati Reds. You want to talk about a good uniform World Series? Because obviously the A's uniform is kind of crazy. That's the way Charlie Finley wanted it. And then you have just these classics with the Reds and the Dodgers. Yeah, and, you know, and it's funny, too. And I feel like a lot of times jerseys now are all trying to be modern. But the great joke about modernity when you're trying to be modern and new is all you do is make sure that you look dated very quickly. <laughs> and I feel like, like, I always, I remember in the 90s, when the nines had a lot of these like new uniforms that were like splashy and like, and they, I remember they had the cutoff sleeve uniform briefly, the future team. And they have all these, like all these jerseys that were supposedly new and day and, and, and daring and the way they work now. Uh, now they all just look like very nineties and they all look very old. The thing I kind of love about the seventies jerseys. Sure. You see them. And because you know, they were worn in the seventies, you mark them as seventies jerseys, but they actually do feel kind of eternal uh, in a way that I think some of the more recent jerseys don't. All right, you came out with a great article. And somehow you tie the farewell to Carl Yastrzemski and how it led to Pete Rose not only becoming a manager, but becoming a player manager, which is something that we don't see anymore. Yeah, it was an absolutely wild story. I've been doing this series for MLB.com throughout uh, kind of while we're waiting for baseball to come back. Well, I look back at a different year in baseball history, and I found this story from 91 on 1983, and I found this story about how Vern Rapp, had got the, the, who was a former manager of the Cardinals, had gotten a job from the Cincinnati Reds because a radio station in Boston played a prank on, played a prank on him. It wasn't so much a prank on him. It was about uh, Carl Yastrzemski. That was the last year of Carl Yastrzemski's career. 82 was, and there were a lot of people very frustrated that they wanted, they were just tired of talking. You know how Boston media is, they're always angry about something. So they were tired of saying goodbye to uh, to Yastrzemski. So they did this, so this radio station did like this mock goodbye to Vern Rapp, who was retiring as the first base coach of the Expos. Well, as it turned out, as I discovered, because I saw this when I was researching 1982, I thought, okay, this story is too interesting to be a small bit in a larger story. So I kind of reported it out and like talked to the producer of the radio station to see, because what happened was when they did this mock radio show, uh, it turned out that they called someone he used to work with who overran the Reds, and he decided, oh, I didn't know he was retiring. I want Vern Rapp to be my manager. Well, it did not work out. This prank ended up him becoming the manager and him getting fired because the, the players didn't like him. But more to the point, what mattered was who replaced him, which was Pete Rose. This is Pete Rose. So it doesn't take that long. It was a really interesting story. I love like kind of butterfly effect stories in sports where one small thing makes a larger thing happen. And so the idea that this, this funny prank, you can find this story on MLB.com, this funny prank that a Boston, Boston radio station did led to Pete Rose becoming the manager of the Reds. And of course we know what led that led to. Yeah. I mean, you see when, when you, when you really dig into it, which leads to one of the biggest and tragic stories in baseball history to where now Pete Rose is banned from the game. He's the all-time hits leader, but he was the gold standard. I mean, he was a champion. He was a winner. He was a leader. And and, and he's not in the Baseball Hall of Fame. 
Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I, I agree that he was a champion and a winner. I would also agree that uh, there was one big, huge band rule <laughs> ruled on the on the uh, on the in every single clubhouse, and uh, he agreed to the terms of it. So we can debate we can debate Rose one way or the other, but certainly I think we can all agree that uh, if he had not been brought back to be manager of the Reds, which required Vern Rapp being fired uh, and getting hired in the first place and then getting fired, he would have never had that opportunity, you know, and I think that uh, uh, Rose, you know, I, it's what's interesting now is I feel like, uh, I, you know, I've been watching this, uh, this dream bracket they've been doing on MLB.com. I know it's a little silly. It's projections with old all-time teams. But it's been fun because, you know, we can talk about Pete Rose being banned from baseball. But, like, he's not in the Hall of Fame. But generally speaking, he's available in baseball conversations right now. And he, he's, like, leading the Reds in this league to, uh, to their title. It's fun to be reminded, you know, once – like, I don't like to think of Pete Rose the manager. I like to think of Pete Rose the player. <laughs> and Pete Rose the player was one of the most fun players any of us ever watched. I feel like if we can concentrate on that, uh, uh, we can just look at the good things and maybe not the bad. Do you think we'll ever see again a guy be a player manager, or do you think that that that, that that's something that's uh, that's archaic and will never be done again? You know, I thought about it. I thought it was going to be done. Uh, I really did thought, think we would never see it again. But you know, the way the managers kind of are now, they're getting younger and younger. <laughs> they're getting younger and younger. The the the, uh, the old grizzled guy in the dugout, Bobby Cox or uh, Tony La Russa, the guy that's that's older and grizzled, and this is how we do it in the in the majors. It's not really how managers are hired anymore. They generally want people to be more connected with the players. I mean, David Ross just retired a couple of years ago. I mean, it's not that big of a leap. Uh, it's not that big of a leap to think that someone would be a player manager. Now, a large part of the job of a manager really now is to be the communicator between the general manager of the front office and the clubhouse. It doesn't Dan, too crazy of a thing, the reason to think that you could have a player do that. So I would have thought maybe four or five years ago, we'd never see that again. But I have to say, circumstances are uh, have kind of almost come back around to where I can see a team maybe thinking about it. You know, if I'm thinking about the A's, and I'm thinking about a guy that's a leader and a guy that could do it for the A's would probably be Matt Chapman. You know, just thinking around the league, like how many guys do you really think would have the chops to be able to be because you still have to be able to do some discipline. You can't be everybody's buddy. You got to make some tough decisions and you still got to be able to play. I know for us, it would be Matt Chapman. How many guys could you think of just off the top of your head that you could say, you know what? I could see this guy doing it. Yeah, I think the thing with Chapman is, you know, Chapman is like so key to what they're doing. I think you almost need someone who doesn't play as often, think a, or someone who's at the end of their career, who's who uh, you still want them to be a good player on the team, but you're not counting on the production as much. I'm thinking maybe Yadier Molina uh, and a couple years in St. Louis or, uh, or, or some, someone like that. You know, I think it would have to be someone who's hung around a long time and already has the respect really that a manager does. But, you know, Matt Chapman, I mean, I have to say, if I'm an A's fan, I don't want Matt Chapman distracted from anything. I want him I want him being the great player that he is. I feel like you almost would need someone who was a, like a David Ross type, frankly. But it makes a certain amount of sense because David Ross isn't good enough at baseball to stay on the team anymore. But I do think there's some value to the idea of keeping uh, uh, of someone who is a part of the team, but not that central to the team. You know, coming up this Friday is a very special day in baseball history. Ricky Henderson breaks the all-time stolen base record, and Nolan Ryan throws his last no-hitter. 
This, this is kind of the fun stuff that we've been going over as we have, we have a lot of time on our hands, obviously. <laughs> yeah. And that's great. You know, it's funny that I have oftentimes worried that baseball is perhaps too uh, tied to its, history and we just say i love the baseball history but we have baseball fans because we love the game so much and have so many great memories with it we have a tendency sometimes to um think about things think, always assume that look backwards rather than forwards and assume that the past was better than the present and and, and the future and i think that hurts the game sometimes because the game it's really wonderful now and i think it will be wonderful in the future and i think we're always measuring the game against our memories of the game now, however, this is a wonderful time to measure everything against our memories of the game because there are no games. And so uh, it's been fun for me not just to watch the great games, but, you know, the great joke of this is that if you could put on for me a random July game between the Rays uh, and the White Sox, if I don't know who's, who's winning, I'll love it. This is exactly all I need right now. So, yeah, I think that uh, I think right now is a good time for nostalgia. I just want to make sure that we, uh, uh, when games get going, we remember how great baseball is, but also will help us appreciate how great it is uh, now as well. Let's end on this. Uh, I'm obviously, you're, you're doing a great job, MLB.com, keeping us entertained. What are you diving into? What, what can we expect here in the future for, from you in the next week or two? Uh, yeah, well, I've got that story. We've got uh, I've I've been doing another series where I look back at players uh, like kind of players that were maybe better than we remember and kind of fun stories. I did one on JD Drew, who is certainly a polarizing player, but I think was a better player than I think people maybe realized a little bit. I did one this week on Travis Hafner. Travis Hafner, Pronk. To me, the uh, Pronk one of the truly all-time great baseball nickname names. There was a Pronk beef jerky. I just like putting those three words together. Pronk beef jerky is just funny. So uh, to write about Travis Hafner has been fun. We've been doing a regular series on that as well. Uh, so we're, we're listen. You know, the the nice thing about baseball uh, is there's so much of it that's happened, and people love talking about. It. That was what was fun about the Vern Rapp story. It was a thing that a lot of people didn't know about, but speaks to. The, the baseball is such a great game, but it's also an unpredictable game, and things happen in strange, amusing ways sometimes. And so I feel like that history is a very fun way to be able to kind of delve back into. Well, we always appreciate the time. Thank you so much, and thank you for keeping us entertained. We read all your stuff, and all you guys do a great job at MLB.com. We're always promoting it. Be safe, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. You too, sir. That, that was an interesting story. <laughs> That's radio guys affecting Major League Baseball. How about that? I wonder what we can do to affect me. You know what I mean? Like, how, want to do a prank? I'm just saying, like, if we ever did a prank, like, what would it be? Like, we got to think of like something that would be good that would cause a like a, a chain reaction where someone gets hired to be a manager or GM or something. Or it could just be us promoting me as a great GM, and then a team like the Orioles hire me to run their front office. <laughs> would you hire me? Yeah, you could be my assistant GM. I I just I just want to be the I just want to be I, I want to be the guy that walks around and just smoozes people in the suites. Oh, so you want to be like a uh, well, smooth guy? I just I just we'll come up the we'll come up with a really lame but creative title for you that you just you get a big salary and you just walk around and talk to people. I want to be the CBF chief baseball fans. Or CBS, Chief Baseball Smoozer. Smoozer. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, you have on arguably the greatest headband I've ever seen. So it, it's been sitting on my table for a while, and I, I bought it for my 30th birthday because we did an 80th steam birthday for my 30th birthday 
well, it'll be almost two years ago now because I'll turn 32 in November. So, yeah, about a year and a half ago, I turned 30. We did an 80s themed birthday, and I was on Amazon looking for anything 80s related, and I found headbands. And I found headbands that said Bush Reagan 84. <laughs> and uh, I bought it, and that's what my the headband I have right now is Bush Reagan oh, yeah. 84. And I have the armbands upstairs, which I think I only wore for the birthday. I don't think I've worn them since. But the headband, I think I've washed it once or twice because I wore it for my birthday, and I like wore it for like Fourth of July one day, just just for the just for the heck of it. But I pulled it out one day, and I have and I've had it down here as a prop, and then I just put it on randomly today. So this is when uh, Reagan's getting reelected. Reagan Bush eighty four. I can't believe, but then again, it's the eighties. That four year campaign <laughs> you gave out headband. The, the best thing about Reagan, too, that a lot of people don't remember, is he used to call he used to call Chicago Cubs games young, earlier in his career. And also, one of my favorite and most iconic lines from Back to the Future is, who's the president in the in the 80s, Future Boy? He goes, Ronald Reagan. The actor? <laughs> I was, uh, I was, I was 12 years old. When, when uh, Reaganomics was taking over the country? 84. I was 12 years old, yeah. There was... 19... You got uh, you got one. I mean, his wife, they did great things for the war on drugs. And she had the just say no campaign that people are still promoting 30 years, like 34, 35 years later, wow. almost. So fancy. I mean, there you got a lot. I mean, there's a lot of stuff happened, but the headband final Amazon is like, there's nothing more 80s than Ronald Reagan being the president. Only NBA dudes wear headbands. No one else wears headbands anymore. And there's hardly any NBA guys that, w- I know. that wear. LeBron wears this for half for a half. And then he takes it off and throws it into the stands in the second half because he's so uh, well, he was up seventy played for the Cavs. I don't know. The Lakers were having a good year until this year. I've never worn a headband. Ever? Maybe we need to bring it back. Maybe. Can we get some headbands? Uh, that was actually our idea for what for Fan Fest. We were all going to wear headbands that said that said "Ask me about Ace Cast." <laughs> <laughs> all right, what game's coming up here? Okay, so next on Ace Cast, we're going to have the Ace thirty first win of twenty nineteen from last May. Frankie Montas got the win with, yes, then-closer Blake Trinan getting the save in the game that was just, just a shade above three hours. So it's the A's and the Angels, not the A's and the Angels from 2013 where we saw Brandon Moss in a walk-off home run in the 19th inning. It's Frankie Montas and Blake Trinan's A's six years later. A great game's coming up for you. It's A's, it's Angels. We'll be back on Friday from 1 to 4 on A's Cast Live. Be safe, and everybody, have a wonderful day. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics.